Sam Manicum. How are you, man? I'm really good, Bruce. Mate, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I'm, I'm blown away. Oh, mate, don't be daft. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, for agreeing to come on. So um, we are trying something new today. I'm using Zoom and I'm trying to record off of Zoom because otherwise I, I sent you a massive long list of um, what I needed from you, didn't I? And then you said, why don't you just use Zoom and record it? Uh, ah. Yeah, and, but also <laughs> I mean, you, you've, you've got to be completely upfront of this because I started off my response with, you are dealing with an IT idiot. <laughs> I don't have most of the stuff that you're talking about. I do actually have a GoPro, but I've got no way of setting up in a position um, where I can actually see whether I'm sitting in the shot or not. Oh, what a nightmare. What a nightmare. <laughs> I mean, I've no idea whether the, the volume and things like that are any good or not, but you'll have to tell me. Um, GoPros, GoPros have got a lot better with their sound, but, um, I mean, ultimately they're an action camera, so sound isn't their, their main focal point. You can buy, like, auxiliary mics and stuff for them now, which which improves matters a lot. But, uh, yeah, the sound's not great with, with GoPro because it's... It it will it will constantly look for um, any sort of peaks in the audio, and it tries to compensate for everything automatically. So I've just done a, a podcast with Peter Hickman, the Isle of, the Isle of Man TT racer and BSB rider, sure. and he just used a GoPro. And in in parts of that podcast, the audio is fine, it's great, but in other parts, it's terrible, and it. It took me days to try and rescue the audio, but we got we got there eventually. I think, hopefully, with it. But um, yeah, I wouldn't worry too much because I've had TMF on here, Missenden Flyer, probably probably one of the biggest. Yeah, one of the biggest moto vloggers in the UK, and he he mocked up his audio, so I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, right. Um, we'll start as we mean to go on, and uh, I'll crack the beer open. You have a tipple well, there, so um, well, slang. I'm going to enjoy you, join me with one of these to begin with. Oh, a brew with brew. It's got tea. Cheers. <laughs> enjoy. Oh, fantastic. Well, mate, um, uh, I'm sure uh, you, you've seen this before, haven't you? You've seen some of the podcasts oh. before. Um, so you know the format. Basically, I chuck up on my social media to say who's the next guest, and then people submit their questions, and... Uh, as you'd expect with one of the most prominent world adventure travellers out there, there's no shortage of questions for you. So how about we just uh, crack on straight in? Is that all right? Brilliant. Let's do it. Excellent. Beautiful. Right. As always, I'll go to Patreon first. Only time I'll mention it. Uh, thank you very much to all the clans folk over on Patreon, and we'll crack on with their questions. Um, Anthony Whistler. He asks, um, it's a kind of generic one for anyone well-traveled on a bike. How do you start? I'd love to do some trips, but I can never sit down and plan. I always draw a blank. So maybe, how do you start? I think the first thing is work out where you want to go. And um, that's actually harder than, than, the, than the person thinks, isn't it? Because we've got so many options as to where we can go. The next is work out how much money you can get together. The next is work out how much time you think that you can get together because those three things fit so hand in hand with each other. Absolutely. Um, once you've worked out where you'd like to go, then go and buy yourself some maps. Get maps out and put them on the living room floor and then just drool and dream all over them. 
have a really good look at what the, the road possibilities are and start having a look at the name places along the way um, and start ticking off the places in every country that you're thinking about going to, work yourself the top 10 things that you would like to see because that can dramatically affect the route that you follow um, through a particular country. Absolutely. And nowadays, we're so lucky, aren't we? Because we can go online and we can even look and see how much petrol costs in the different countries around the world. And of course, that too helps you work out if you want to go into that sort of level of depth of, of investigation while you're planning. But I mean, that can work out for it. For example, okay, um, petrol in this country costs two dollars um, a litre and in this country the neighbouring country it costs a dollar a litre okay well that means that technically I should spend less that time in the two dollar um, a litre country and more time in the one dollar because hey I can go a hell of a lot further yeah. so it's little things like that um, that can work out but I think the other thing is to have a look at um, what sort of riding you actually want to do do you want to spend an awful lot of time off-road or are you quite happily just trundling along and meandering every bit of asphalt that you can find? Or do you want a general mix of everything? Because those, again, will work out, uh, help you work out what route um, that you'd like to have. I think one of the key questions you have to ask yourself is, why am I doing this? What do I want to get out of doing um, a big trip? Because if you set off knowing what you want out of a trip, then the chances are you're going to achieve it. But I tell you what, I guarantee you that six months into your trip, you're probably already changing the things that you set out to do. You yeah. probably added to them or completely um, rubbish that idea and you headed off on a tangent because that's one of the beauties of travel, isn't it? Keeping an open mind and taking advantage of the opportunities. Definitely. I, I think, sorry, for, for, for me, I, I had set quite a quite a tight deadline really for where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And, and even at the time I didn't appreciate how much I was missing on that because I was, I was focused on the journey, you know, I need to be there to do that, that to do that. I gave myself some leeway, but, but definitely not enough. And I'm, I'm very envious of people like you who, who really embraced that and, and, you know, eight years you were on the road for, weren't you? Phenomenal. Yeah, but I just turned into a two wheel bum, didn't I? <laughs> Yeah, um, actually, I just suddenly thought that when I said that. There, w there may well be some people tuning in here who, who perhaps, for whatever reason, don't know you or have never heard of you. So can I hand it over to you to just give a little bit of synopsis as to who you are and what you've done? Okay. Um, Jeepers, whenever I'm put on the spot, I always start <laughs> off with an album. It's terrible. You can edit the load of I was born and brought up until I was 10 years old in um, the Congo, or Zaire as it subsequently became. My parents were um, living and working out there. And when I was 10 years old, um, came back to the UK, which is where my family originally were from. And um, I don't know, just growing up in a place like that and being able to run around wild barefoot and shorts and a t-shirt sometimes, uh, just just taught me not to be afraid of very much and taught me to stretch boundaries. I mean, half the time, my parents never clue what I was up to. And if they had, they would have been scared witless. Um, age 16, I set off and did my first solo trip. I did that on a bicycle. I'd been doing a paper round and all sorts of odd jobs and things like that and saving money. And eventually I had enough money to buy myself um, a brand new bicycle. 
And I kind of stood there looking at it and thinking, wow, this is just amazing. I mean, it's three speed. Wow, I don't I never had one speed clunkers made out of the bits and pieces out of canals and that sort of stuff before then. But I was looking at it and thinking, right, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to ride it to school? And it was looking at, a bit at me, back at me and saying, no, come on, we've got to do more than that. So that's um, summer holidays. Uh, I borrowed a page out of my school atlas and we set, to, set off to ride through Europe. Age 16, that was such a fantastic trip to make because it taught me an awful lot of things. One, if you don't try, then you never find out. And two, making it to a destination doesn't matter because it's what you see along the way that really does matter. Yep. So that was a, a pivotal um, point in, in life for me. And how, what a lucky guy to have that age 16. After that, um, I got settled into a career as you're supposed to do, but I had such rotten, itchy feet because I'd already discovered that this traveling lot was a buzz. So I set off and spent um, three years um, hitchhiking and um, backpacking and just generally buzzing around Europe and then made it across to Australia and through India and, and various other places. And um, when I got back from that, my mother was looking at me and saying, hey, come on, you know, you can't do this for the rest of your life. And I was thinking, yeah, well, why not? Yeah. You've still got to kind of earn money. And I came back from that trip with a huge debt. I'd maxed my credit cards out in the end and live with that for the next year, living like a complete pauper so that I could pay these off as fast as I possibly could. And I hated the sensation. And I don't hate much, but that I've never forgot the sensation of really intensely disliking where I was at. And um, then got involved in a career again, did some more shorter trips a year here and a year there, and um, then got into the career path again. And... And over the years, I've backpacked, hitchhiked, bust, sailed, um, been car trips, and so on. And I, I'd sort of got on the career path, and I was at a stage where I was thinking, well, come on, you've got to do something different, because um, you can, and you know how brilliant it is out there. And um, so, yeah, I set off to spend a year riding the length of Africa and got home eight years later. <laughs> I'd only been riding a motorcycle for six, um, I passed my test in six weeks and six weeks later I was at the edge of the Sahara looking south thinking, Sam you are such an idiot, what are you doing? But well, you know, uh, I was just... Let's, 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 let's rewind a little bit there Sam, in case you didn't catch that folks, Sam passed his bike test and six weeks later was now on the edge of the Sahara. Now, all those people that contact me and go, oh, you know, I've only been riding three or four years. I don't think I've got enough skill level. Sam Manicum. Yeah, bit of an idiot. <laughs> not at all, not at all. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the actual... I mean, I could just sit here and listen to you talk for hours and hours, and, and you know, we've done quite a few different overland events and stuff together so i have sat and listened to you talk for hours and hours but i'm sure we'll cover all the details of the trip throughout this chat but that'll give you a little um a little inkling as to what what sam's been involved with i'm a very uh, very lucky guy that i've been able to do as much as i have and i have huge value for that yeah absolutely i think i think um you know for for myself um I'm very aware of how how I can't take this for granted that I've had that opportunity to go. But I'm also of the same mentality that 
you make those opportunities, as in the traveller, you the person, you have to make those opportunities come about and you've got to work out your own plan that will facilitate however it is you're going to do your adventure, you know? Everyone, everyone has their own restrictions, don't they? Family, money, um, health, all these different things. But there will be a way for you to live that dream somehow. It might not be for eight years. You might have to break it down. But there will be a way to do it. And, and to me, that's one of the complete joys of travel and the reason why nobody's trip is ever the same as the last person's or the last 100 people yeah. because your circumstances are yours. Yeah. Nobody else has got your circumstances. Nobody else is going to travel at the time you are, the way you are, with the finances you have or haven't got, or what your background is and the things that it's taught you and so on. You may be traveling through a different, the same country as um, 100 people have before, but you'll see it in a completely different way. And mm -hmm. I think that's a fantastic value. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because it's it's your experience, isn't it? You're, it's everything is how it's how you interpret the situation. How how does the person that you meet when you're away? How do they react to you at that moment in time? You could be the nicest paced person in the world, but if you're dehydrated, in pain, ill, hungry, you can be short tempered. I know I, I get I get very hangry, which I didn't appreciate before, uh, and that it's the old um, what's the box they call it your your uh, reaction affects my reaction which aff affects your reaction it's that sort of thing um okay so we have next question sorry david hemmings sam what motivated you to do the trip and would there be anything different that would you that you would do if you did it again um i was motivated to do the trip because i suddenly realized that I wasn't enjoying the career path that I was following. I was doing very well at it. And initially, I, I'd had a lot of fun with it. Um, but it had got to the stage where I was feeling a little bit jaded with it. Yeah. And I didn't like that sensation. And um, over a significant number of beers, I started to realise, um, actually, I had no responsibility. I didn't have any debts. My family were well. I had no kids. I had no pets there was going to be no better time to head off and travel again. And while I was sitting drinking those beers, I started to ponder, well, how would you like to do it? You've sailed, you've backpacked, and all the other different ways that you've traveled. What about something new? What about something different? And then the next set of the thought process is, well, what didn't you like about those other ways of traveling? And it's like being on a bus or a train, isn't it? And we've all had this experience where we've been looking out of the window and we've seen something fantastic and we're gone. Mm. We can't stop, we can't get off, we can't go and look at this thing. And, and sometimes we're lucky enough to be able to go back at a later date, but normally we can't, we've just gone. Yeah. And going through all of the likes and dislikes, I kept on coming back to riding a motorcycle because it was going to tick all of the positive boxes. The only thing was I'd been banned from riding a motorcycle when I was a youngster and quite right too, because my parents knew me so well. They knew that I would be I would be that guy that was trying to go around that corner too fast. So the hardest thing about going off on this trip was actually telling my mother, um, Mum, I'm gonna ride a motorcycle the length of Africa. And you know, she was brilliant. She just looked at me and she said, Well, I knew something was bubbling away in there. Yeah. And then the, the quality of my mother, she said, what can I do to help? I mean, awesome. what more could you wish for Amazing. something like that? 
mums mums have that habit don't they you know um, yeah they they can either make or break can't they <laughs> if we're if we're lucky um they're, they're tuned into us and we're tuned into them and mm. that's yeah yeah it's it's a really fortunate thing in life if, if we if we've got it um david asked um and hello david by the way um you asked what would i have done differently and i think the there are two things one is i would have learned much more about riding off-road uh, i dealt with an awful lot of bath along the way and i fell off a lot i damaged myself um by not knowing what i was doing i didn't even know the correct way to pick up a motorcycle and these were all things that I learned. You you can learn everything when you're traveling if you're mm. positive thinking and you use common sense and allow yourself the time. I mean, there were days when I dropped my motorcycle and I looked at it and I just thought, how on earth am I going to pick this up? You know that horrible moment when it's fallen over, but it's fallen over facing downhill. Oh. Yep. <laughs> and you're on gravel. Yeah. And you just think, there's no way that I'm going to get this up on my own. Yeah. Well, you find the way to do it and craft, and it's not the right way, but you still manage to do it. Absolutely. So I would have learned an awful lot more about riding off-road. Um, I think by doing that, not only can you keep yourself a lot safer, but you can give yourself a lot more fun because you'll see more of those side turnings and think, okay, let's go look. And that, to me, is one of the joys about travelling with a motorcycle. It's not sticking to a route. It's taking advantage of the fact that you've got the freedom to see that side turning and go for it. So I would have done that. And the other thing is um, I would have been a lot more restrictive with the amount of stuff that I took. We all take too much. As a novice motorcyclist, I'd planned for every eventuality that I could possibly think of and yep. load was stupid. But, hey, that's part of the learning curve. None exactly. Right to begin with. Everyone does it, don't they? Everyone does it to begin with. There's that old adage where they say, pack, then unpack, half it, pack, unpack, half it, and basically keep going till you think, I can't possibly survive on that. And yeah. then you're probably going to have to half that and then go. It's 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 one of, one of the rules that I always try and use is the two uses rule. Mm. In other words, if something's got two uses, then there's a good chance you should be taking it with you. And the ground sheet's a perfect example of that. Um I've talked about this so many times before, but it's all—it's always incredibly relevant. Get yourself a non-crinkly ground sheet, because well, not only is your ground sheet going to protect the underside of your tent and stop you know sharp stones and things like that piercing your bathtub inside your tent. If you sleep in a tent and you know text, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. If not, then you're thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> but the other thing is about um, having a, a non-crinkly ground sheet is if you end up sleeping in a really rough, grotty hotel and you can see that the sheets have been washed for the last 15 people that have stayed in it, well, put your ground sheet on top of the bed and you've got something that's relatively clean in comparison. And non-crinkly is great because, of course, when you turn over in the middle of the night, you're not going to wake yourself up all the time. <laughs> now, there speaks the voice of experience. <laughs> Brilliant. What have we got here? Haggis, one for both of us. From our world travels, what are your top three must-visit countries and why? Oh, you first on that, Bruce. Oof, top three. Um Norway always Norway always comes comes into to this my answer when I get asked just for me it's possibly one of the most breathtakingly beautiful countries I've ever been to 
Um, I've said it loads of times before. It's like Scotland on steroids. It, it's like proper Lord of the Rings. It looks like it's been painted. Mm-hmm. Um, the roads, the roads are, are a lot of fun, but then the police are very hot on speeding up there. Um, and the people, the biking community and the people there, it was one of the first places where it really struck me how awesome people are. You know, I was just all of a sudden I was just I was just being faced by complete random strangers who were being really friendly and helpful. And I just up to then I hadn't had any issues really coming through Europe. And I just happened to need a set of tires right up sort of halfway up Norway. So I found myself in a position having to ask for help, which I'd never really been in before that going through Europe. And and so that was really the start of the whole overland adventure for me, where you open yourself up to complete random strangers and you you get it back in droves from people, don't you? So Norway's always had a little special place in my heart, definitely, for all those reasons. Japan, again, for similar reasons, stunningly beautiful. I'm blown away by the history of the place. Um, and again, I just found the people really, really nice there. Well, even more so than a lot of other places I'd been to. I just, I just found them again. I suppose I crashed in Japan, so I found myself really needing help and being very vulnerable. And so I was taken in by a completely random family for for three weeks. And again, that's got a little special place. And then I think another one would be Russia, just because it was this polar opposite of how I expected you know I expected Russians to be very cold not helpful in the slightest possibly quite a dangerous place and for me it was the polar opposite I found the Russians really warm and helpful very welcoming very sociable the whiskey uh, vodka comes in handy there Um, and, and it was just you know, it's a massive place, isn't it? You know, Russia's 10,000 kilometres across. There's seven time zones. It's just, it's just that once you've crossed that place, I think it's a massive tick, isn't it? And yeah, those three stand out for me, definitely. Well, I absolutely understand why, although I've not been to two of them. Norway, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely incredible. Um, Japan? No, I've never been there. I was very tempted to when um, I was in Australia. But when I worked out the cost of getting to Japan, Mm. my budget, it it just wasn't going to work. And at the time, I put together an application for um, heading into China. And you had to put almost a business proposal together to do it. And I had a lot of fun. I I had no expectation of getting a a thumbs up um, for going to China. But I thought, well, if you don't try, you won't find out. And it was quite an entertaining exercise to get into. To my amazement, just before <laughs> Australia, I got the thumbs up for it. The only thing was that they wanted a hundred US dollars a day from me, and there was no way I had that sort of money. Um, and this is back in what would that have been, 1994? Um, so it would have been an entertaining time to be there. Yeah, but, definitely. Um, anyway, um, Russia, I haven't been. Uh, it's always on the to ride list, and the more I hear from people saying exactly the same thing that you have just said, that it is really a country that is um, got the wrong image mm. for how it really is, uh, makes me want to go there even more. So one of these days, yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. Um, no order of importance, Namibia. Um, I fell in love with this country because of 
the, the amazing riding there and the wildlife and its history. Uh, the mix of asphalt and gravel there, absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, they've even got roads like uh, made out of salt that you can ride on. They're packed salt along the coastline. And it's quite a weird sensation, too. When yeah. you look down some sections of it, it looks like you're riding on black ice. Well, of course, you've got a hell of a lot more grip than you do on black ice. And I know that. <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, it's salt. But uh, the gravel roads in, in Namibia just drop dead gorgeous. And going to a country where you've got... Um, the only elephants in the world that are adapted to live in pure desert. Now, that's quite an achievement for such a huge animal. So this country is full of um, awe, as far as I'm concerned. Next country, Colombia. Mm. Um, Colombia was one of those countries that um, had a real air of danger about it when we were heading there. That's my partner, Birgit, and I. When we were heading there, it was only just beginning to ease up and the political drug lord banditry situation was beginning to lighten up. And I, I'm, I'm not masochistic, but I like to go into countries that have a bit of tension. Um, there's something very, very real about mm. them. It's almost as if the shine has been stripped away and you see what really exists in a country. And heading towards Columbia Berg, it was quite uncomfortable about it and quite nervous. But as we were getting there, we were meeting one or two backpackers that were coming out and a couple of motorcyclists. And we talked to them about it and they said, well, look, you know, it's like everywhere in the world, there are places that you don't want to go. Um, but the greater percentage of the country is fantastic. Um, don't miss it. And that, of mm. course, exactly what I wanted to hear. And I watched the expression on Birgit's face change a little bit. So. <laughs> Um, in we went. And the next day, we were in the middle of a, a, a major riot going on with tear gas and all of the rest. <laughs> so, well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was a long time ago, and um, there were good reasons for it. And that was the only place that, well, not the only place, one other experience, but most of Colombia. We were there a couple of months and um, loved it. It's beautiful, fantastic yeah. road and hospitality, just superb. Um, the other country, and I'm going to cheat here because I want to make it two, and this may surprise um, some of you guys, Canada and the United States. Mm. North America was the part of the world, and I'm including Mexico um, just tangentially, um, North America was the part of the world that surprised me the most. I went into um, North America with a lot of preconceived ideas about what I was going to find there. And normally I try really hard not to travel with preconceived ideas because they're so dangerous. Mm. But in our own countries, we're taught to think about different countries in different ways before, um, you know, it's what we see in the news. It's what we're taught in school. It's and so on. It's what we read in papers. Yeah. Um, but so often when you get to a country and this slots in so well, doesn't it, with what you just said about Russia, when you get to a country, um, it really surprises you. The reality mm. is completely different to what you expected to find there. And both Canada and the United States had that effect on me and um, blew me away. And I keep, I haven't been back to Canada since the big trip. Um, definitely on my to ride again list. Fantastic. So much that I hadn't seen. But the United States, yeah, I keep going back because I love exploring there. And I love the fact that I'm still finding surprises. Absolutely, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you there. The states, the states was just like the, the last stage. It was almost like it was the stepping stone to get me from the other side of the world back to Ireland, and then 
home. You know, it's, it was the last part of the trip, and I didn't I didn't really even plan for it to be, you know, a significant part of the trip. It's just oh, I've been to America, we'll get through it. Now nah, you haven't, have you? You have. If you've been to like Florida or or New York, you've not been to America, and um, it's definitely somewhere where my wife and I more or less every year we've we've gone back and for like two weeks just hired a big truck flown into like uh, either Boston or, or JFK New York somewhere like that hire a big truck and then just hit the road no plan whatsoever we've not booked anything we've right. just got we've just gone on road trips and you see so much you know it really has opened my eyes to how much I actually missed on my trip just by hitting the road with no plan and just getting off the main roads and going to the back roads and oh, I loved it. That's great, isn't it? I mean, plans are great things to have, but mm. they end up, you run run the risk of them being railway tracks and you end up sticking on those plans and, and not taking advantage of opportunities and we all do it. Mm-hmm. But it is one of the challenges that we have to work against when we're travelling, isn't it? Absolutely. Getting ourselves mentally on those railway lines or tram lines. Yeah. And one of the things with the United States... For me, go heading there as I was thinking that it was going to be too easy. After you know six and a half years in developing world countries, most of the time, I thought, well, you know, okay, I can find food, I can find somewhere to stay, I can yeah. get a shower, and it's just roads are going to be too easy, etc. But actually, within the first couple of weeks, I realised that actually most of those things weren't true at all. Um, it was as easy as you wanted it to be, but you could make it as complicated as you wanted it to be. <laughs> The joy of having um, a decent asphalt road that could take you to that place that you wanted to see without two weeks of grief on really gnarly, horrible dirt roads, which, of course, you could do if you wanted to. But just being able to see more things because you had the choice, and that was the key, wasn't it, in the States? You can go on the freeways. You can go on the main roads that existed before the, the, the freeways, and you can go on the little back roads or you can go on the, the dirt and the gravel. The choice is one of the things that makes it so phenomenal, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. The, the Like you said, the infrastructure is so huge there that you have that massive choice, don't you? You can do the whole back road trail right across the states if you want to or you can jump on the freeway and and cover a state in a day it's you know it's up to you yeah awesome how did you find uh, I'm, I'm not sure if someone might cover it but but um it came up in that in what you were saying there i found it probably took me about six weeks six to eight weeks from the start of my trip before i before i was actually in it and 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 realized sort of what I was doing because for the I would say probably easy for the first six weeks I was just on another bike trip you know I'm I'm on a I'm on like a long holiday I'll be going home soon and then it's almost like a switch goes off where you're like no no I'm just I'm just heading east you know it's the only way I'm getting home is when I've completed this you know this this is life now and absolutely fantastic isn't it it's awesome yeah it's like wow this is life I am living the dream yeah. And it's interesting that you say that, um, six, eight weeks, it's exactly the same for me. Was it's it? that period. Yeah. And um, it's, I spent that first six weeks going too fast, covering too many miles, yep. not stopping enough, just because all of a sudden I'm free. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm on holiday and I'm on my motorcycle and there's a road and there's new stuff to be discovering. And I just enjoying the buzz of the ride. But after that six weeks, when suddenly I realised, but no, this is it. 
then I'm stopping every 50 miles and I'm standing and I'm looking at the view. And it doesn't matter whether the view is drop-dead gorgeous mountains or whether they're gnarly as dirty as semi-derelict factory there possibly is. That's what's at the 50-mile stage. So that's why I've stopped and I've taken the time to stand and to look and to smell and to hear and to feel quite often, all of those sorts of things. And it's that pivotal point, isn't it, when all of a sudden you realise, hey, slow down. Yeah. This is what you're out here for. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, 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 I take from you that you are you're naturally that sort of person who likes to take in their surroundings anyway mm -hmm. in in a sense that i find with me and i'm still guilty of this now despite like all the lessons you learn on the road i still do it if i'm away on the bike say i'm say i'm heading up to i don't know let's just say fort william i'm, I'm doing a ride up there it's almost like i set this thing in my head i've got to get there and I just, I have this overwhelming impulse to get there, to get there, to get. And once I get there, I'm like, oh, I've missed out so much of that journey. Why didn't I take time? But it's, it's a real battle in me to, to sort of, to sort of slow down and appreciate what's round about. I think I'm getting a little bit better, but I'm still nowhere near perfect at it. But I think you know. As soon as you start living in um, the real world and in inverted commas again, and I'm not sure if that's the right way of putting it, but you get what I mean. Um, then you start having to slip back into the routines and the rush and the meeting deadlines and all of those sorts of things. And when you're on the road, well, your deadlines are, what's the weather doing? Um, yeah. How long is the visa for? Yeah. Those sorts of things. Yeah. So you've got more time technically to, to stop and, and be curious about things. And for me, that's one of the most important things about travel is being curious. What's out there? Mm. What can I discover? What can I learn about? What can I see? And sometimes it's just the way something smells that makes me think, wow, I never knew that existed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I One of the most ridiculous things I remember my mentality being on the road was – a thing that, that that comes to my mind was uh, Chichen Itza, you know, in, mm -hmm. uh, is that Peru? Peru, isn't it? Chichen Itza is in Peru. And um, I was, I was about a, a day's ride from there. I was heading there. And then I also needed a set of tires. I thought, mm, in about seven, 800 miles, I'll need a set of tires. And the only place that I could find to get tires for the, you know, for the GSXR was in Lima, in the capital. And I remember thinking to myself, hmm, well, I could just go to Lima, and this is this is what makes me sick thinking about it. I can always fly back and I can go to I can go to Chichen Itza with the wife. You know, and I look back now and I think, you bloody idiot, I had the opportunity to ride to Chichen Itza, and instead I didn't. I went straight to the capital city, stayed in a like a hostel, and got a set of tires. And you just think, what an idiot. That that mentality of I can always come back and do this. You can, but it, but... It's dangerous, isn't it? It's like yeah. seeing something and you think, oh, that would make a great photo. <laughs> ah, no, you know, an old guy on, on a donkey-drawn horse and cart type of thing, and yep. you think, oh, I'm in a country where there'll be hundreds of those, but mm -hmm. you're never going to see that one that makes yeah. you think, oh, that would make a really nice photo. Yeah, exactly. You, you've got to stop and do it. Yeah. I met, I met a guy, I think I was in Romania, and I, I rode by this chap, and he looked like... 
he looked like the guy out of Monty Python, Life of Brian. You know the guy that took the vow of silence and sat in the ditch with the mulberry? Jehovah, Jehovah. He was a spitting image of that guy. He was, you know, a white guy, but very sunburnt, um, long sort of linen gown on. I think he was even bare feet and long white hair. Like your typical sort of God image. And he was pulling a... a a metal fabricated trailer with a big plaque on it that said walking for peace. And the guy had been on the road. I think it was 15 years or 16 years that was on that. I didn't take a picture. And you think, what, what, why would you not do that? <laughs> you know, I've never, I'm ne I think I even remember thinking at the time, I'll see him again. If he's walking, I'll meet him. Of course you would. Of course you would. Yeah, isn't it amazing that there are people out like that? <sighs> out in the world doing that mm -hmm. and the number of people that will have seen him and stopped and thought about it just for a moment that mm -hmm. they wouldn't have given such a great topic yeah yeah it's it's crazy and the amount of people that are out doing stuff like that and not shouting about it you know that there's no fuss about it whatsoever. The amount of travellers I met who, I remember meeting this young lad, 21, 22-year-old, I think he was Swiss or something, but he was in uh, Chile, met him in a hostel in Chile, and he was cycling from uh, Ushuaia. In fact, he'd been in Dead Horse, he was heading to Ushuaia, so he was cycling the, the length of the American continent. And, you know... It, he didn't even have a website. He wasn't on social media. He was actually doing it to meet girls because he, he, he built a little, <laughs> yeah, he built in his little trailer that he was towing. He had, um, he had a kite board on there, you know, like a, one of those buggies that's pulled along the beach by the kites. He had that with him and he had a little seat. And I said, what's, is, is, is your girlfriend with you? And he went, um, he said, not this current one, but you never know who I'll meet. And he, that's basically all it was. <laughs> what a lad. Um, yeah, definitely. So um, just take your time, folks. I think that's probably the biggest message from all that is take your time and grasp the opportunities as and when they, they arise because before you know it, you'll have moved on and you, you won't get that opportunity again. Uh, right, I've just seen who, who does the next question. Pete English. Now, Pete's got a bit of a reputation for some pretty deep questions, but I think this one's actually quite down the line. Let's have a read. Uh, when you left your passport and traveller checks in, uh, I think he means Lesotho, by accident, did he honestly think they would still be there when he returned to collect them? And how relieved were you to find that the four ladies still had them? Pete, that's such a good question. Um, and it is um, Lushoto, which is uh, some mountains in um, northern Tanzania. And the, the build-up to this story was that um, I'd been travelling through Kenya and uh, did a safari trip. We, we went to the 4x4, a whole bunch of other travellers, yeah. and myself, two Aussie girls, two um, Israeli guys, an American guy called John, and myself. And off we went and we did our own safari, which was fantastic because this four by four took us everywhere. But I got on particularly well with John. He's, um, I don't know, six foot four, dreadlocks, and a mad sense of humor. And I said to him, Look, you know, um, what are you doing next? And he said, Well, I've got a, a month left on, on my flight ticket, so I'm not quite sure. And I said, Well, look, I'm heading down through Tanzania. Would you like to come with me? Ride pillion on the back of the bike. Yeah, okay. Uh, of course, he'd heard my stories and he knew that by this time 
oh gosh, how long had I been riding a bike? Mm, six months, maybe. Um, almost never had a pillion passenger on the back <laughs> of the bike. What well, could go wrong? A lot of rubbish by then. <laughs> given away an awful lot of stuff. Uh, this is really embarrassing, but um, I had an awful lot of pairs of socks when I started. <laughs> or something but um but he said yeah okay let's uh, yeah I'm, I'm fantastic so we kitted him out with um uh, a crash helmet and uh, it was one of these open face things it was bright yellow and it made him look like some sort of demented bumblebee with his dreadlocks sticking out of the side <laughs> of the an army surplus uh canvas jacket which we put um leather patches into the elbows and um he had some uh, got him some gloves and he had his hiking boots and things like this so you know, he was reasonably well kitted out, and off we went. And of course, he's much bigger than I am. So sitting on the back of the bike, our shadow on the road must have looked really funny. <laughs> but um, we made it down through into Tanzania, and we were skirting on the bottom of the mountains. And we kept on looking up to them and thinking, "Wow, they look awesome up there." And a turning came, so we thought, "Right, let's let's go and have a look." So we wound our way up this steep road to the top. Um, a little town up there, booked ourselves into um, a little local hotel, which was run by five ladies. We spent the next few days um, walking around and exploring. One of the little local boys um, took us by the hand and, and guided us all over the place. The things that we discovered because of, of him, fantastic. Um, but then the time came and um, piled everything on the bikes and off we went and back down the hill and onto the dirt road and by this time it had been hissing down with rain and that dirt road was just appalling i'd never ridden on anything like this with a pillion passenger let alone a <laughs> four pillion passenger and it was warm and raining inside my helmet and the raindrops were so heavy i felt them hit me it was an incredibly unpleasant experience and you can imagine the joy when we finally made it to the asphalt and there was a hotel a bit out of our price range but we thought stuffed it we, we've earned this went to book in and that was real when i realized that i'd left my traveler's checks and my passport underneath my pillow in this hotel room oh. all that distance back. Oh, no. It was one of those moments where you can't believe how bloody stupid you've been. <laughs> you know better than this. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I was knackered by this time. That was really hard work with a big guy on the back of the bike on, on the road in, in that condition. And I thought, I, I, I'm not strong enough to ride um, back again. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to hitchhike. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of the unluckiest guys in the world because things go wrong all of the time, but I'm lucky and I've got a fantastic guardian angel. And something, when it goes wrong, always turns absolutely brilliant. And I promise you, I'd only been standing there for five or ten minutes when a car stopped in front of me. It was a four by four. Um, you want a lift? Yeah, please. Um, where are you going? Oh, I'm going up to this town. Oh, um, so am I. Could I come along with you? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, and we're sort of getting along quite nicely and bouncing along and I'm, I'm enjoying the view this time and the ruts just aren't a problem because I'm able to see sideways all the stuff that I'd missed yeah. but all the time we're travelling I've got this this pit in the bottom of my stomach which has got that squeamish sick feeling that you get when you know that you've been a complete arse mm -hmm. and you may be about to pay a really nasty price for being such an idiot but you know there was this other little voice in the back of my mind that kept on saying yeah but you know people are mostly good the chances of you getting there and it being okay are actually far greater than there being a real cluster when you yeah. get there 
I was dropped off just near the hotel and there were the five ladies and big grins on their faces and holding out my my money belt and and, and one of them just went that, <laughs> that says enough that's absolutely enough i'll tell you what I never ever left my money in my passport underneath my pillow again. <laughs> Lesson learned. That's a really, really good tra- question. Um, I, it, it taught me, or underlined to me yet again, trust people first. The chances are they are trustworthy. We spend too much time in life being suspicious of other people and expecting them to prove to us that they can be trusted, where in actual fact it's the other way around. Absolutely. Um, wait for them to prove that they can't be trusted before you you go that way it it worked absolutely and i I think something that you learn don't you when you particularly when you overland travel because it's not like you're going from an airport to a tourist destination you're you're not being sanitized to that extent you're out mixing with normal proper people within their own confines you learn how much bull is out there in the media about places about people about cultures religion everything like that people are people aren't they the world over people are people it's the same might speak something different might sorry speak a different language they might think different priorities in certain things believe in different things but people are people aren't they people are nice it's just so true yeah i was i was a i was a real skeptic of that before before traveling and that that really did open my eyes and i found it very hard to to fit back into my old job life in particular for no other reason than i think to exist to exist in the old bill you you have to be quite skeptical well very skeptical you've got to be on guard because the vast majority in the cities anyway the vast majority of the times you don't often deal with people who are wanting your help. You know, occasionally you are you are that sort of knight in shining armor, yeah, and that's great. But the vast majority of the times within a city, you're reacting to something. So you're looking for that person that's done wrong. So people are always on guard. People people are always very suspicious of you. And and I, I found it very hard to come back and adopt that that sort of mentality again. Yeah. Sure, I totally understand that, and I understand mm. why it was so hard for you when you went out because mm. you'd been educated to, um, repetitively mm. to think a particular way, and you'd had to live that way. Mm. Otherwise, you would never have survived. I mean, yeah. we, we on the street, we just don't see half of what you guys have to deal with. And no, all respect. Yeah. Well, thank you, but I, I. Uh, you know, I've, I've got, I, I have a lot of respect for the old bill, but then I also, I also think we're very. I'm saying we, like I'm still part of it. We are very guilty of, of being quite generic, as I, as I just said, in that we are very suspicious of people, and I, I know why we are, but I'm so glad I'm not in that environment anymore, where it's almost like you have to be that. You know, you can, you can, I can let go of that now. <laughs> And realise everyone's decent. Everyone's good. Do you remember that old um, television programme, Dixon of Doc Green? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, that's always to me. I mean, I was brought up on this as a kid when we were back in the UK. That was one of the things that was on television. 
And I always remember thinking, you know, what a wonderful way to do policing mm-hmm. when you're there with your key aim to be to guide people in the right direction and to help people when they're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to wrap them on the knuckles when they've got it wrong. And I see signs of, of brilliant policing like that still happening. Mm. I was coming back from uh, the London Motorcycle Show one time and um, I was on Libby, my R80GS, and I still had the books that I hadn't sold left. I had um, four pop-up banners. I had clothes for um, five days, et cetera, et cetera. And I was overloaded. And I was coming back down the 303. It was about 11.30 at night. There was hardly a soul out there. And so I had the throttle open a little bit, a little bit more than I should have done. And I was just having a buzz. You know, this is a great way to wind down from in the show, five days of being full on. Um, that's including setup and so on. And then I saw flashing blue lights in my mirror and I thought, oh, <laughs> you idiot. And this, this uh, it was a police motorcyclist and he pulled up next door to me and he just sat there next door to me with his lights still going, looked across, <laughs> waggled his finger at me, shook his head and then opened his throttle and <laughs> And to me, that was perfect policing, perfect policing, because I've never ridden that overloaded again, mm. and certainly not that fast when I've been that overloaded. And I've always had a bit more of a look in my rearview mirror for a flashing blue light. <laughs> but then, you know, your, your observation's obviously a lot better, because you're looking for the old bill all the time. Your, um, your observation of the road ahead and your environment, that, that's gone up, hasn't it? So Absolutely. double d- I mean, tick. Perfect policing. He, yeah. he didn't need to do anything else to teach a lesson. Mm. Um, yeah, anyway, I, I sidetracked this, didn't I? I'm famous for it. <laughs> um, I think, well, I, next question here, I've, I was just having a look there, trying to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Trying to uh, see what the next question was going to be in case we'd covered it. Uh, Andy Bowen, I think we've kind of covered it, but maybe you've got some other story. What's the funniest story Sam has from his travels? There are lots. <laughs> um, but this one I normally tell in presentations because it is a perfect sign of the sorts of things that we've been talking about in the past. And it's it's a perfect example of you can never take people or situations for, for granted. Um, I had an accident in Tanzania, and cutting a very long story short, it was um, an incredibly um, gut-wrenching, scary um, story. At the end of it, um, I was given an invitation to go to visit a village in the desert in the centre of Tanzania, and I decided that actually that was what I was doing. That was what I was going to do. And I headed out to this village, not a word in common with anybody in the village. They were so far off the beaten track that they didn't speak Swahili, and I'd learned a little bit of that. Of that, of course, no English or anything else. But um, using sign language, I persuaded <laughs> the, the chief. I can see where this work. is going. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can bleep out the naughty bit. <laughs> um, I persuaded the chief of the village um, that you know. I would be allowed to stay with him. And when I mentioned the, the young lad who'd given me the invitation, his name was Domu. He was such a smart kid. Youngster, about 11 years old, out doing his version of what I was doing. So he literally had a stick with a little um, knotted handkerchief on, on the end of it. And he was out exploring. Um, but anyway, so when I mentioned his name, I was made welcome. And I spent the next days um, sitting with uh, the chief and his men 
And they were telling me fantastic stories about um, life in the village and the history of the village. And this has all been done with sign language and with drawings in, in the, the soil and so on. And the chief also wanted to try my tent. And I had a, a little one-man tent and this thing I called the space capsule because it was so tiny. The only way we could get in, it was feet first. It was a ridiculous choice for a travel <laughs> tent. And he tried my tent and he came out shaking his head and looking at me as if to say, what sort of weirdo are you? And he was right. It was, it was ridiculous. Anyway, so after a few days, um, I'd been watching what was happening in other places in the village. Um, and every day in the middle of the day, in the midday heat, the women would collect together in the shade of the, the, the big tree that was there. And they would be um, mending clothes, um, preparing food, feeding babies, um, all sorts of things like that. But they were also making jewellery out of seeds and stones and bits of bone and that sort of thing. And what they would do with this is that they would walk it out to the main road and then they'd sell those things so that they could um, buy the things that they couldn't make or um, grow for themselves. Mm -hmm. Such things as salt and soap and so on. Anyway, um, these the women were just in fits of laughter every day, whereas we men were very stern and serious with what was going on. After um, I, four day four or something like that, that I said to the chief, um, using sign language again, can I go and sit with the women tomorrow? And I tell you what, he double took. Did I Did I just uh. hear say that right? You want to sit with the women? So consultation with the rest of the men, and they're all sort of looking at me and looking back at the chief, and you can hear the conversation going on. Um, well, he is a strange white man, and if he wants to sit with the women, then okay, well. So yeah. he called, the chief called over his, his, um, his, uh, his first wife, and he did have quite a lot of wives. And um, he said to her... Like, Brave you know, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Right. Um, he um he said to his first wife, it, the white guy is gonna come and sit with you tomorrow. And she shocks everybody by saying, No way, he's not going to sit with us. But well, of course, when you never say no to the chief in, in mm. public, do you? In in the hut, she was probably bosh without a doubt, but in public, no way. Mm. So I started to feel really uncomfortable about this. But then the, the next day came around and um out to the big tree and silence. Not a word, not oh. a giggle, not a smile, and I felt awful. I put my sarong on the ground next door to the women because, well, you know, I'd done it now, so I might as well just see what happened. And I then heard something really strange. I heard the chief's wife saying something in Swahili to one of the other women. I thought, wow. So they do speak some Swahili. So some of the women who were going out to the main road had learned Swahili so that they could sell the jewellery. Wow. So then I talked to her in a bit of Swahili, and it turned out that she'd also been to a mission school, and so she knew. And between the two of us, we cobbled together some language, and we could start talking. It wasn't just sign language. Well, the next stage was the girls. They wanted to start asking questions because, you know, yeah. they were curious about this, this strange white guy that was suddenly amidst them. Uh -huh. <laughs> the first question that they asked was um, the girls. They want to know, are you married? <laughs> well, of course, I said no. And that was translated back. And this was greeted with lots of giggles and rolling eyeballs in my direction. The next question made me laugh because it was, now bearing in mind that I just said that I wasn't married. The next question was, so um, how many children do you have? <laughs> Difference in culture. Yeah. I said, well, no, I don't have any. And this was interpreted back and this time um, looks of, of, of shock and consternation on the girls' faces. Yeah. And, um, 
they started asking her to ask me the next question. She was just saying, no way, I'm not asking him that. No, no, no. So anyway, they encouraged her and eventually she got up. And I'm still sitting cross-legged on the floor thinking, what's coming next? This is bizarre. What a situation. Anyway, she walked over to me and she leant down and she poked me in the testicles and said, the girl, they want to know, something wrong? <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, I mean, there are other bits that go with that story, but, you know, that, that, you would have to bleep that out. So. Yeah, that'll be for the uh, after 9pm version, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but definitely. Travel. Um, if you just let yourself get involved in a situation and you keep an open mind, you just never know what's going to happen next. And some of the funniest things happen when you never know what's going to happen next. Absolutely, yeah. And it, and it's the different cultures as well. Some cultures think think nothing of, of, of that, whereas, you know, in the UK, that's like a... Oh, you, you, you don't do that. You, you don't. You don't bring topics like that up in a conversation with a stranger. Whereas in others, they're very open about stuff, aren't they? Now, I have to admit that I have never had my testicles poked by. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> you're going back. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Next okay. one. That was Andy. That was a really nice question. Thank you for allowing me to tell that story. It was, a, it was a good one, wasn't it? I like this when you when you open it up to to other people to post questions because some of the questions you get are awesome. Yeah. Um, in fact, speaking of which, this is a good one, Lee Hurst. For both of us, if you could only ride a bike for two more weeks and then never again, what week of motorcycling would you repeat and why? And what week of motorcycling would you like to do that you never have? And why? Wow. Mm. Wow. Lee, After you. Lee, you're tight. <laughs> only, a, only two weeks and a week for each one. Mm. Sure. Um, my favourite road in the world is the Carretera Austral in southern Chile. This is um, mostly a dirt road and it's like riding through a prehistoric environment. Um, the vegetation there, it's just dramatically different. Trees are huge. Uh, if you're there after the rains or when the snow melts, then the waterfalls just come shooting at 90 degrees off out of the rock faces. Um, the gravel changes from being fist-sized to walnut to pea. Um, it's just constant challenge every day, riding through an incredibly dramatic um, landscape and I loved it. Uh, my ride was actually cut short there because I ended up damaging myself um, pretty badly. And um, yeah, so um, I didn't ride everything that I would like to ride. So mm. I would love to go back and spend a week riding that. But I tell you what, Lee, I'd rather have two weeks if I could. <laughs> um, a ride that I would like to do in a week that I haven't done yet. Somewhere close to home, actually. I would like to ride the coast road of West Island, but yes. can I have sunshine every day, please? Can you what? Have sunshine every day. <laughs> I think that's just a, a little bit too far out the realms of reality there. <laughs> it's um, a road that I've been wanting to do for a very long time, and I just haven't got around to it yet. But yeah. Um, yeah, the more I, more I see about it, the more I read about it, then I just think, yeah, fantastic. Um, it'll be great. Yeah, everyone everyone keeps telling me I need to go out and do the it's the Wild Atlantic Way, isn't it? It's what they call it, the the route up the west. And um I wanted to do it this year, but obviously I don't think that'll happen. So it's it's another one getting put to next year. I'll do it next year. But I plan on doing it next year. 
For me, Lee, uh, a week that I've done that I'd like to repeat and why. Um, I would say probably go back to the world trip in Laos, my time in Laos, where uh, it's it's the sort of iconic bit in, in my trip where you, you might have seen the footage of when I, as you said, when you drop your bike and it's facing downhill the wrong way, downhill on gravel. Well, I, I had that. I was on part of the old Ho Chi Minh Trail on a Jigsaw Thau and they hadn't built the road yet. They'd literally just sort of skimmed the dirt off, so it was just rock underneath. And um, I ended up going down this hill that was that was like that. It was it was hard to walk down on a foot. So on the bike, stamping on the back wheel with the back wheel just locked up, I was just gaining speed and momentum, careering down this this hill. And then there was just an open pit to my left that went down to where the the river was you know it's like a hundred odd foot drop off the edge and obviously you go where you look and i could just see i kept heading that way and it was like oh so i, I end up having to jump off the bike and crash the bike and um it, as you said it took me hours i think it was about an hour hour and a half to pick that bike up and eventually i, I, I managed to pick it up but that that section of the trip really sticks in my mind because it was probably physically the hardest but also the most rewarding I think because that when I got through it and got to tarmac it I really felt like I'd been on a you know an adventure within an adventure there just because for like a day and a half two days I've been up in the mountains mixing with these mountain village people and going over rock falls on a sport, just things that it shouldn't do and everything I thought the trip would be, it was bang, it was there. You know, I was going through it. So I would love to repeat that. Low at that time, I don't know what it's like now, but 2013, it was it was still untouched in places. You could see it in in some of the the, uh, the old capital city, I can't remember the name of it now, but you could see sort of the Western world starting to come in. I think there was a, I think there was a Burger King or, or something like that had had arrived. But apart from that, it seemed quite untouched. So I'd love to go back and have a little slice of that. Um, a week I've not done. Yeah, I don't want to say the same as you, Sam, but I really love. I, I really do like the the thought of doing the Wild Atlantic Way. Or I would also, I would also like to do the um, Dead Horse Road up at the top of Alaska, because I, I never got to a Schwai or Dead Horse, and I would love to go back and and do one of them at least. Do it together, mate. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'd be well up for that. Just, just mint. I would, I would love to do something like that. Yeah. We only made it up to to Watson Lake and we got stuck uh, in the vineyard in California helping out and um, <laughs> visit turned into six weeks. Pages <laughs> was um food and wine. It was it was misery. Yeah, but um, but by the time we got up to um to Watson Lake it started snowing on the road in mm. front of us. We just thought, nah, we're not kitted out for this. Um yeah. we're not good enough riders for it. So um we made one of those difficult decisions that actually let's go somewhere else. Yeah, um, I was saying, you know, I planned to do it, ran out of time, ran out of money, and but I will do it. I will get back there. Uh, Lee, that was a fantastic question, mate. Thank you. 
Billy H, for both of us, once you got home from the Round the World adventure, did you find it hard to adjust back to normal day-to-day life? Well, Bruce, I know that you did. Yes, massively. Massively. Yeah, I, I have made no bones about it. I really struggled for probably well over a year, maybe even a year and a half, two years, to be honest. And um, what really helped was this, was was starting a YouTube again, because I, I really missed that. I really missed that interaction. In fact, I got back to th- in middle of 2014. I didn't start the YouTube again till end of 2016. So, yeah, just over two years. Just over two years. Yeah. You have to feel inspiration to do something like this, though, don't you? Because if you don't, then everything's just going to be flat and boring. And I've sat and, and I've watched an awful lot of what you've been up to over the years, and it's never flat and boring. But that, <laughs> takes, that takes full-on energy. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm the type of person who is perfectly, I wouldn't say happy, I'm, I'm able and content to sit and do nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, I can pass time with the best of them. But I also, I also really like and need to have targets and things to aim for, something to mm-hmm. drive me on. And and the more outrageous that that target is, the best. You know, prime example. You can never ride a jigsaw around the world. Well, I was like, well, Jacques done it. Nick Sanders has done it. I can do it. So yep. I, I I like a challenge. I I, I thrive on that. But um, coming back, I. Uh, for a lot of reasons it was things like um, that mixture of emotions for me it was like the 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 round the world trip was all i'd it's all i'd focused on for three four years before i went and then you live it don't you for that entire i mean i was only away for a year and a half you were away for eight years so i i can't fathom how hard that must still be to deal with when you come back from a big trip, you find that you're a stranger in your own land. That's perfect. That sums it sums it up to a T. You've changed a lot, haven't you? And the longer you're away, not only do you change, but the country that you're coming home to, your home country, has changed a lot too. Mm. After the eight years, um, there'd been hardly any dual carriageways. <laughs> no with, with Birgit with me, itching to show her all of these um, lovely little towns and villages and all that sort of stuff. I couldn't find the blooming things. There are really great big carriageways around them all. <laughs> so many times. But having said that, my map was a little bit out of date, so that made a difference. Um, the, the way that I deal with coming back from a trip, particularly that trip, um, is I try to think about home being... Um, another country that I'm adding on to the end of the trip, but it's going to be a country that I'm in for longer. In other words, actually having changed helps because the combination of me having changed and um, the UK having changed means that there are an awful lot of things that I don't know, things that I haven't seen before, things that I haven't had a go at before because it never occurred to me or I thought I didn't have the ability or whatever. So by adding another country on the end of the trip and going into it with the same attitude, actually, it was fine. Yeah. It was just a really interesting thing to do. It, it, it makes a big difference, though, when you come back not in debt. 
I came back from that one trip I mentioned earlier, horribly in debt, and I, I never do that again. Um, we came back with enough money for us to bimble around and go and drink beer with our mates and, and have a bit of a catch up. Um, we had enough money to put down a deposit on somewhere to stay if we needed it. Um, all of those sorts of things. So there was no real pressure on us when we got back. I mean, we did get straight into um, to work and that also helped. But the other thing that um, I think helps an awful lot of people is when you're back and you've settled back in again, start planning the next trip. Yeah. Because the buzz of, of getting all of the thoughts, the, the maps out and the, and the learning and everything else, especially because what you've learned from the last trip, great. It helps keep you sane. Yeah, definitely. So having another thing to focus on and plan for. Yeah. I, it was interesting what you said about how how everything's changed when you come back and like you're you're a stranger in a in a strange land almost. F for me, what what really I remember really striking a chord with me. Something I really noticed was how much how much things hadn't or people hadn't changed. You know, for me, I was I w I came back into my old job and I'm you know I'm back stood on sentry post with people that I'd spent my life with beforehand you know and everyone was moaning about the same things you know everyone's moaning about the same people doing the same things and they're all hacked off with this and hacked off with that and and i just found it i found it really frustrating you know i want i want to grab people and go well bloody change it then you know <laughs> and uh, i think coming back into my old my old work environment you couldn't you know you you were powerless to change all that you just had to you just had to conform and do your little bit, and I just, yeah. I just found it really hard. It was like, it was like being thrown in a prison almost, and just not being allowed to be yourself. Yeah. I, I totally understand that, and I think um, one thing that I learned to do is when I come back from a big trip is not to um, try and go back into the field that I was in before, mm. and sometimes that means that I'm starting right down at the bottom with nothing on. Yeah another huge learning curve but of course the roads t taught me um, the value of learning curves um, because I've changed so much and I I don't necessarily fit anymore because I've changed and I've you know I was in retail management before I did um, the eight-year trip and the thought of going back into retail management I didn't think I could do it mm -hmm. There were certain aspects of the job that I loved and I got a real buzz out of doing, but there are other aspects that I just didn't. And I thought, I don't want to have to go back and deal with those things again. Yeah. Um, so I carried on being a professional bum. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting, I think, in that I don't know if it's a case of more people, more people actually talk about this side of, of adventure travel, you know, that the sort of, dare I bring up the D word, but the, the depression side of it, that, that downside, or is it just a case of because I've gone through it, I'm more aware of it? But but I remember before I did my trip and I was at the over, um, I was at Hub and mixing with all these people that had done it, no one was talking about this sort of doom and gloom when you get back. No, and I, I, I didn't know about that. And there was just one guy I met before I, I went away, a guy called... Um, uh, Graham, he did Brain Rotting. I don't know if you've ever seen it. He did this series on YouTube called Brain Rotting, and he rode a motorbike around the Americas. And um, it's, it's a fantastic series. 
when he got home, he happened to live in Bromley, same place I lived in at the time. So I dropped him a message and just said, I'm planning this trip. Any chance we can meet up for a beer and have a chat? And it was something he said to me at the time. He said, you know, prepare, prepare for the biggest adventure and the biggest challenge when you get home. Uh, and I didn't appreciate that till I got back. Yeah. I think it doesn't, it doesn't get talked about very much because no. people are afraid of talking about it. Um, most people don't think that they will ever get depressed about something and they don't want to think that they can mm -hmm. ever get depressed about something. Depression has happened to, to people who are deficient for some reason or another. And too many people think about it like that. But mm -hmm. depression can hit absolutely anybody and it can smack people at the most unexpected of times. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, full full compassion to, to anybody who's going through that because, yeah, it's it's got to be tough. Mm. I am very, very lucky that I never have had to deal with it. But to a certain extent, that's an amount of stupidity. I don't think to. <laughs> oh, I love your attitude. I really do, Sam. I love it. Um, oh, here's, one, here's one that we always get asked. Stitch, has, Stitch is asking for both of us, what was the sketchiest encounter or situation you dealt with during your journey? Now, you've got you quite a few. <laughs> um, um how long have we got um stitch that's um it's that's a good question because you're going to come across sketchy moments when you're on a big journey it's just just they happen mm -hmm. um and how you deal with them is what matters more than being afraid of them um probably the sketchiest moment was crossing the border between sudan and ethiopia um, I was travelling with an English couple, Mike and Sally. I'd met them on the ship going from Greece to Egypt, and we travelled on down through Egypt and Sudan together. And we were basically kicked out of Sudan because we managed to upset a brigadier general. I don't, I don't recommend it. As, as you do. <laughs> exactly. Um, so there was no we were we were suddenly finding ourselves at the end of the day crossing the border into ethiopia and i hate end of day border crossings and we were going from an environment where the soldiers wore immaculate uniforms um the the border pole was whitewashed the flagpole was whitewashed the the flag hanging from the pole wasn't in tatters there were no bullet holes anywhere and we were crossing into a country that was just finishing 20 years of civil war. Yeah. Most of the soldiers were old men or young boys and the sense of aggression in the air, in the air there was unbelievable. You know, there were bunches of kids to, to one side and I didn't even notice at the time, but it was only when I sat down to write my journal at the end of the day that I realised what the, the sideways vision had actually seen happening. These kids were tossing around a hand grenade like it was a tennis ball. And this was an environment that we'd just come into. And there were kids who were carrying AK-47s, but they couldn't carry them because they weren't strong enough to lift them. They were having to drag them in the dirt. Wow. But they were strong enough to lift them up and prop them on something so that they could shoot them. And ragtag bits of uniform and all of this sort of stuff. And I, I tell you what, there, there are some experiences from the age that make the hair on my arms and the back of my neck rise, and this is one of them. Um, I'll never forget how sketchy this situation was. You know, Mike and I 
went into um, the kraal, which is basically a compound with sticks around the outside to, to you know, as a, as a first line of defence. And Sally stayed with the motorcycles outside because they were loaded up with the gear. And we thought, well, you know, she'll be fine. She can just make sure that nobody nicks anything just by standing there. So Mike and I went in to try and deal with the paperwork. And when we got inside, um, it was just a mess. Um, scabby dogs lounging around, soldiers asleep all over the place. You could smell the alcohol, um, stacks of guns, you know, where they sort of stand them pointing up like this. They were just pointing up like that all over the place. And we were shown into one of the huts and it was pitch black inside. And when we, when we were shown inside, just the air filled with flies. You could just this monster noise from hundreds of flies. When our eyes got used to the darkness in there, we realised that there were soldiers sleeping in there, but there was a desk. And we were told, sit, um, the boss, he'll be back. Um, and we sat and we waited and we waited and we waited. And um, then there was gunfire in the street. And of course, Mike and I just ran straight out because that gunfire was close. Mm. And uh, there was Sally. Uh, she was lying on the ground, but with some of the boy soldiers lying on top of her. And she looked up at us and just yelled through the shooting. Um, don't worry, they don't want to hurt me. They're just making sure none of the bullets hit me. Wow. How, yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah, that was um, a fairly sketchy um, yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's Africa, though, no? Africa is just. Uh, there's parts of Africa, I've, I've got very limited experience there, but there's some parts that I've seen that are just amazing. The, you know, the kindness and ger generosity of people is just. It's it's amplified by how little they have. You know, in Morocco, you can meet you can meet these kids, young lads, who are always trying to, you know, they're trying to hustle you to get you to go and see the like uh, the Asud Falls, the waterfalls in Asud. They're trying to get you there because they get a little kickback off of somebody. That's how they make their living. And these mm -hmm. these lads, they have nothing. They they live in the clothes that they wear. They sleep at the side of the road in the gutter because they they have no home. They have nothing. And yet, even if you don't even if you don't use their services to go there and you ask, you know, is there a hotel or somewhere like that? They'll help. These, you know, these people will help. But then I've also experienced the other side where, you know, people are just, they don't care if you live or die. It's, it's, they're going to go out and make sure that they're okay and they get some money and they do something. And it's just such a volatile continent isn't it like what's good in the morning changes by that can change by the afternoon can't it but that's all is a, a land of complete extremes absolutely um, virtually anything um can happen there it's yeah. one of the reasons that i love it so much and absolutely yeah, there are some really gnarly situations there but mostly there aren't mm. mostly it's fantastic people and you know you never hear about the entrepreneurialism no. of Africans, unless it's somebody dodgy from Nigeria who's created the con that might have something to do with an email that pops into your inbox or words of that. Yeah. But you know, you meet some amazing people that are making their livings out of absolutely nothing and they are so full of pride, they want nothing from anybody else, they want mm -hmm. to do it themselves. Yet if you're in trouble as a foreigner, as a visitor, they'll give you everything they've got. Absolutely. That's and and that is Africa. That's the real Africa that we just don't hear enough about. Yeah, I think it was Nick Sanders that that he he told a story where he was on his R one, 
And he, he was literally, he, he broke down on the R1 and it was the middle of the night and he walked and found this village. And he said it, it was like, like you know, stereotypical. It's in, it's in black Africa, not Arab Africa. So it's down in the sort of middle. Can't remember which country it was. But um, he's gone into this village and it's the old mud huts that are there. And he's knocked on the door. A guy's opened the door. And he's basically managed to say to the, the guy that, you know, my bike is broken down. I, I need help. And this bloke, took him into his, his home and he slept there with this guy and well, I assume it's his wife and his family and stuff. And, and in the morning they fed him and they took him back to his bike and boom, 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 everything got sorted and that was done. And I remember Nick saying, I watched one talk that he gave and I remember him saying, he often wondered that if the shoe had been on the other foot and three o'clock on some wet morning during the night, if some black guy had knocked on his door, didn't speak English, would he have been as welcoming and hospitable as this chap was with his family. And I, that that's always stayed with me. It's always struck a little chord. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, Africa, again, yeah. Anyone that knows my trip knows, knows the story. I got taken at the, the Russell border. Um, wasn't, wasn't pleasant. I look back and I, I often wonder, was it as bad as my mind tells me it was do you know what i mean like it's it's almost like a movie you know i got put in a little concrete room and one minute they're laughing and joking offering us ice cold coke and the next minute they're doing the russian roulette thing with a gun at my head and you know it's threat the threat to do all sorts never they didn't do anything but it was it was all just to try and put pressure on to to get you to take out insurance of all things you know what i mean it's ridiculous but it was just to take out some insurance and um that that was probably as sketchy as as my trip got really I, I think more because after that i ended up back in the uk for a while and then i got the opportunity to go again after that my mindset was just i'm doing it i am not giving up i'm gonna keep going so i don't think i let i don't think i let my emotions get the better of me like i did in that at that, that time in that environment in mauritania I, I very much succumbed to, oh my good God, what the hell is happening around me then, you know, and uh, I think I've just made sure I never let myself do that again. I think yeah. um, when you got there, you were still very um, young to the road. Massively. You were on full on intake overload. And you said earlier on about getting dehydrated and hungry mm. and things like that. And, nobody reacts well to any situation when they're dehydrated and hungry. Yeah. One of my favorite sayings is um, eat well and sleep well, and you have a chance of traveling with a smile mm. yep. and um, dealing with situations like that makes all of, of the difference. But how can you possibly conjure up an image in your mind before you get there that something like that could happen to you? Mm. And actually, do you want to do that? Because if you do, perhaps it'll make you so afraid that you'll never you even take the risk of having a go. Yep. And I mean, I remember when you came back from that and I was um, bitterly disappointed for you that it hadn't happened. And I remember you telling me about it. And I think we were at a show or something like that and somebody yeah. was tugging on my sleeve and we never really got a chance to talk about it until years later. Um, but one of the things that I admired 
about you so much was that you came back, you sat down, you thought about it, and you made an alternative plan, and off you went again. And that, to me, is not a defeat. That, to me, is just pure common sense. Because it doesn't matter where you travel in the world, things are going to go wrong in front of you. Mm, and absolutely. Like, are you going to get yourself in a really gnarly state and give up? Or are you actually just going to change direction? and go and do something else. Mm. And I think self-analysis when you're traveling is a really important thing to do, and a lot of people don't do enough of it, in that, am I really enjoying what I'm doing? <laughs> what if I'm not? Why not? Change it. Okay, then why don't I do that instead? Mm. Hmm, a good idea, let's go. Absolutely. Uh, I think be, being on the road, like like, like this, this sort of dream that a lot of us have of a life on the road, it's just life. It, it's it's no different. It's just you're on the road. You're, you're in a different country, so you've got different... You might have different languages. You've got different cultures to deal with and the unknown of not knowing your surroundings like you do when you're at home. But you've got the same things to deal with, haven't you? You know, where where am I going to sleep? Um, am I safe? If I'm not safe, how do I make myself safe? Where do I eat? Where do I go to the toilet? That's as bare bones as it is, isn't it? That's where do I get my laundry done, and how do I pay that bill? Absolutely, because yeah. All of the time. No, you're exactly right, and it's one of the things that Birgit repeatedly says to people who say to her, "What advice um, have you got?" And she says, "Well, um, it's just going to be another form of life, mm -hmm. another form of living." Yeah, and and that the mentality I think that you develop once you've you've been on the road and done a trip like that, whereby you're, you're, you're problem solving, aren't you? You know, it's, what's this issue? How do I remedy it? How would I remedy it? Bang, 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 bang. What, what is it? What's the outcome I want? Well, I think if you, if you just, if you adapt that or not even adapt it, if you just incorporate that into normal life, I mean, that's normal life here, isn't it? It's like, well, for me, what 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 did I? I wasn't happy in my situation in my job. What do I want to do? I want to do this. How can I make that happen? Okay, boom. And it it might take a year, two years, three years, five years, ten years. But for for a trip, for a trip like what we've done, if it's something that you want to do, then focus on that and figure out how you're going to make it happen and problem solve to get to that place where you want to be. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds simple, isn't it? And it's a very, it is a simplistic, that is a very simplistic breakdown of it, but that's well, it is, all it is. I mean, the road teaches you an awful lot of simplicity about things, doesn't mm. it? Because you've got so much time to think about things. Yeah. I always um, conjure up the image of um, when I'm riding and I'm on my own and I'm in my crash helmet is that I'm riding in a thought bubble. Yeah. There's all sorts of thoughts can be going in and out of my mind and I'm having little discussions with myself and thinking about things that I'd never thought about before. Blimey, where did that thought come from? You know, all of that sort of stuff. And I love that. And a lot of the time when you start thinking things down to the basics, you realise, well, actually, they are basics. And mm. there isn't a problem here. There's just a solution that I've just discovered because I thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Very therapeutic being on the road, I think. Very therapeutic. I should have a motorcycle in that thought bubble. <laughs> Oh, I've, I've just seen the next question. Johnny Hackinson. This is a question all motorcyclists have been asking themselves for ages, and I hope one of you can give the answer. If Pinocchio says my nose is growing, what happens? Johnny, it's not only um, motorcyclists that have this issue, it's um, fishermen as well, methinks. <laughs> um, Mark Twain had a, a really nice saying that I, I like a lot, and he said, if you never lie then you never have to worry about repeating yourself. 
And I think that's actually quite a good code to live by. Wow. Absolutely. God, yeah. Very true. Just, it works, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think I kind of... I'll not say I never lie, but I don't. I don't think I conscious. I consciously go out there to lie, because I'm I'm crap at it. I just I, I don't I, I don't see the point in doing it. You know what I mean? If if I've done something, yeah. If I've if I've done something, then there's obviously a reason I've done it. So have the courage of your convictions to either stand by it or admit you're wrong. One or the yeah. other. Yeah. I would make the world's worst poker player because. <laughs> yeah, I mean all. <laughs> You know, you know, in the police movies when they're interviewing the person, they've got them in the cell and so on, and and they're analysing which way the eye, person's eyes go. Yeah. I tell you what, my eyes would just be fixed to the left hand side, <laughs> looking down like that. <laughs> um, yeah, Johnny, good question. Don't know what you've been smoking, but good question. <laughs> um, oh, Simon Dufton basically said he's he's known you and Burgett for for many years. Um, loves the pair of you to death. And his question for you is, where is book number five? Well, likewise, Simon. Um, <laughs> and thank you very much for asking me this question, you bastard. <laughs> I think it's in the post. Yeah. Not, not really. Um, <laughs> it's, it's something that I thought about a lot over the years. Now, the, the answer to this it could be awfully long, but I'm going to keep it um, as short as possible. The reality is when you self-publish a book, mm. you have to do everything. You have to learn about absolutely everything and it takes you a long time and all of the promotion that you do you have to do it yourself you have to work out how not to become a repetitive bore in people's faces so you're constantly looking and it takes up a huge amount of time and some people have seen my books and some people have read them and some people are saying nice things about them but there's an awful lot more people out there who've never heard of them never heard of this bloke Sam Manicum, never heard that he falls off his bike a lot and has his testicles poked and all of the rest of it. Um, and it takes time to, to, to get the word out and it's, it's, it's constant work. Um, that's an excuse. Um, the reality is I spent quite a lot of time over the last year working with new authors. Um, there are quite a lot of people out there who um, are itching to write books and the technology is there now um, to make it possible for them to do it. It's so different even to when I first started. When my first book came out, it was just on the cusp of it changing from um, vanity publishing to self-publishing. Mm. And I'm so glad I didn't have to vanity publish yeah. because that would have just been awful. Uh, but it's a title. But it's all the stuff that goes along with it as well. Now, um, if somebody has got a story that they want to tell, tap it tell it share that story give people the other chance the chance to learn from what you've learned from um give people the chance to laugh too um give cheap yeah, but anyway you get my drift mm. so i've been using some of the skills things that i've learned along the way things that other people have taught me as a way of payback to those people by helping other people and that's taken quite a lot of time now i hope that all of these guys books do get published if they don't well that's their decision um but I've enjoyed helping them, but it takes up an awful lot of time. Mm. Um, having said that, I am working on the next book. I have been since uh, December. Um, it's a slow process. I'm a very, very slow writer. And who knows when it'll come out? It might be next year sometime. I don't know. Um, whatever I do, I don't want to produce something that I'm not incredibly proud of. And yeah, so I'm slow. 
Um, but I hope I'll get there in the end. The trouble is, I keep getting distracted. There's so much good stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's me sidetracking again. Thank you, Simon. I've um, I've actually I've just got into audiobooks and I've downloaded I've downloaded your first one actually at the moment. So I'm I'm in the middle of that. But um, yeah, audiobooks. I love that. It's a really. I'm a bad. I'm I'm no good at sitting down with a book. I've always got other things to do, and especially more so now than ever. I've, I, you know, you know what it's like. I've, I've got video editing, then the social media. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly doing that. But now, with an audiobook or a, like podcast, things like this, you can, you know, when you're jumping on a bike or if you're on the train or you're on the bus, you can just have it playing out your phone into your headphones and poof, I love it. And your your audiobooks are brilliant. I, I love listening to you talk anyway. So I'll leave no, links down below. Thank you. That's no really nice. No, the no audio came about because um, people who'd read the books were writing to me and saying, Sam, why not put your books into audiobook formats? Mm. And I just thought, yeah, okay, yeah, okay, um, I'll get to it. It's it's another another monster pile to have to learn about. Yep. But also the, the finishing touch was when um, after a, a series of, of shows, the NEC in particular, the number of people that came to me when I was standing there book signing and said, you know, I had a good old chat with me, sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes. And at the end, I'd say to them, so what's the effect of, you're going to buy a book then? <laughs> and the number of people that said to me, Sam, I'd love to, but it's been great talking to you, but I can't read. Mm. Wow. You can't read. And to begin with, I just thought, blimey, the education system in this country is really, really getting bad if this many people are telling me they can't read. Mm. But then the penny dropped one day when a guy said to me the next sentence, and he said, Sam, um, I, I can't read. Um, I'm really badly dyslexic. Oh. Reading a book is an impossible task for me. He said, I can't even read road signs. My wife has to tell me how long words are so that I know when to go left or right as I'm riding my motorcycle. And I ride a motorcycle because it's something that I can do, which gives me a huge grin, doesn't make me feel disadvantaged. Um, and yeah, it's an absolute buzz. Have you ever thought about putting your books in audiobook format? And that was when the penny finally dropped and yeah, started work on it. Um, and so, yeah, they were done for the number of people that really battle with reading. And I subsequently discovered that a lot of them are read, are listened to by people who are busy, like you've mm. just said, or people who have got long road trips. I was a little bit gobsmacked when the chap got in touch with me one day and he said, um, Sam, we were all going on a family holiday. It was a driving holiday across Europe. And um, my eight-year-old son and my nine-year-old daughter were in the car and we played into Africa. And I thought, no, <laughs> there's really gnarly stories in there. Ooh, gosh, I hope you realised. And he said, yeah, but, you know, my kids are old enough to, to need to know that this sort of stuff happens. And then the conversation carried on. But, um, yeah, audiobooks, they're good fun. And there's some really good ones around now, aren't there? Really uh, yeah. Good. I'm I'm um, I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan's. I listen to it's part of the I, part of the reason why I started this podcast was I love the long form content. And he had this chap on who has written a book about uh, Charles Manson, the Charles Manson murders, and he he did like a 22 year investigation into the whole uh, situation behind Charles Manson. So all about the CIA involvement and everything like this, and it it was fascinating well he has an audiobook so i've bought that and i'm i was listening to that before i bought your book so yeah it's I, I love them just because you can you can crack on with things and just have it 
playing, you know, so you're almost ticking two things off at once, aren't you? I had an email from a lady one time and she said, dear Sam, washing up has never been so interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, that works. Yeah. Can I do a little bit of a plug here? Would you mm. mind? Well, of course, go on. The, the plug is for um, a man called Roger Chatterton who runs um, Kite Studios in Cambridge. Now, I spent two years of writing to um, the various different um, recording studios around the UK that I could find um, recorded audio books. And most of them didn't bother to reply. And the ones that did said, um, are you an, an actor or mm. a professionally trained narrator? And well, no, I'm not an actor. Um, and I'm definitely not a professionally trained narrator. So no, we're not going to do it. Sorry, bye. And I, after two years, I was beginning to think, gosh, you know, I'm running out of people that I can do this with. Have I wasted all of this time or has it just been an unexpected adventure that I've learned from what's next? So I was in the Ace Cafe, wonderful old Ace Cafe, love that spot, mm-hmm. having a full English breakfast on, on one of the, um, the bench tables. And everybody who know, who's been to the Ace Cafe knows exactly what I'm talking about, both in full English breakfast and bench table. And you yeah. end up sitting next to people that you mm-hmm. don't know, never met before, but it doesn't matter. Um, and this chap and I got talking after a while. And um, after about 10 minutes of conversation, really just nice general motorcycling, what's the weather like type of conversation, um, he turned around to me and he said, you're Sam, aren't you? And I said, oh, yeah, thinking, okay, what's coming next? And he said, I read your book into Africa and I really liked it. Have you ever thought about putting it into audiobook format? Uh-huh. Well, my first reaction was, sigh, do I tell him about the whole two years worth of effort or do I just say, God, that's a really interesting thought. Thanks very much. But I thought, well, actually, you know, we've been getting on so well together. Why don't I tell him in brief what's been going on? So I told him yeah. in brief. And he said, well, tell you what, um, I'm the managing director of a recording studio. How about you come up and we'll record the first chapter and see if you're rubbish or not. If you are, it'll be wow. my pleasure to tell you so. And bang. Thank goodness for the Ace Cafe and bench tables. Awesome. Um, because, yeah, um, that's, that's how they started, because he took the gamble. I'm not a professionally trained narrator um, and I'm not an actor. Um, but he he was prepared to give me a go. And that's one of the things that I love about this motorcycling world of ours. So many of us are prepared to give each other a go. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. But it brings out the best in people, doesn't it? It really does. And that was Roger, was that right? Yeah, a kind studio in Cambridge. Super guy. Top man. Uh, right, next question. Otto Bennett, I think we've we've kind of touched on this already uh, question for for both of us how has traveling around the world changed you as in your worldview or your own temperament that sort of things as I, for me it's it's kind of put me back in touch with who who i think i i was before i became very skeptical and suspicious of everybody and i think i'm much more open to people and i'm much more trusting than i was definitely but i'm also i'm also very this isn't just because of world travel it's my old job as well i'm hugely skeptical of what the media tell me and what i hear on the grapevine without personal experience of it you know two sides to every story at least two two sides to every story yep absolutely better Uh, to to right um i'm karma um, I'm much steadier. I'm much more open-minded. I'm hungry to know more. I don't mm. take things at face value. Um, I'm much more 
willing to look for the possibilities um, are much more likely to say, well, why not? Mm. Instead of looking for the reasons why not. Um, I have a real intense dislike of ignorant bigotry mm. because so much of that gets spouted from people's mouths who haven't got a clue. They've heard it from somebody else who's heard it from somebody else. Yeah. And the hate that ignorant bigotry breeds in this world is just shocking. Mm. And it's such a waste of energy and opportunity. Yeah. And what you just said about you know, the media, for example, some of the mainstream media just should be embarrassed, completely embarrassed at what it does. Mm. All this focus on repetitive hammering away at doom, gloom and disaster instead of proper reporting like it used yeah. to be. Done. Well, what's the build up to this? What's the actual situation now? What's the, the thought that might happen next? And then what actually does happen next? Come back to it and talk about it again, because all we tend to get is two or three days of hammering away at us with some form of negativity, lots of pundits saying what they think, and very, very little in-depth research and fact. And I, I just think that's such a waste of time and energy for all of us. And I think a lot of the, the woes in the world today become come from the fact that so much of that happens. Yeah. Oh dear, what? I've suddenly got on a soapbox, sorry. <laughs> no, but you're you're a hundred percent you're a hundred percent right in my in my book. It, it's the, the mainstream media, the news and things like that, it's no matter which camp you come from, there's always there's always a political reason for it. There's always a taint of it. It's not they don't report the facts, it's somebody's interpretation of it and whatever whatever inkling they have to to taint that that uh, viewpoint that they have and then they that then gets reported as fact and it's not it's not fact uh, it really gets my goat <laughs> it's, it's a marketing rule um if uh -huh. you say thing at least three times then people start to believe it's true 100%. Um, so buy my books buy my books buy my books you get what i mean and that's what happens with um too much of, of the mainstream media now yeah. if it's enough people start to think it's true yeah um also um I hope we didn't disappoint you with the angle we suddenly headed off on <laughs> with that. But the point is, the more you travel, the more you realise that actually a lot of what you see in the press is um, it's just not not all of the truth. No. There's a bigger truth out there. Absolutely, yeah. Don't don't believe anything until you see it with your own eyes. That's what I always think, you know. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I take it now. I'll I'll listen to, pe to people I trust. I'll listen to, and I'll listen to anyone's point of view. But like like you said, I I'm intensely annoyed by ill-informed or just plain ignorant viewpoints on something. You know, they've got no experience of it. They actually have no hard facts to base that opinion on. I really get annoyed when people start spouting this viewpoint and there's there's no fact behind it no basis behind it yeah. i think social you know, media is is social media is fantastic in so many ways it brings people together it it gets truth out there because it's actual people that are reporting it but conversely that very same facet of it 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 spreads so much misinformation and so much downright hatred at times because it's people out there that are that are putting it out there. So you get the best and the worst, don't you, of that same medium? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there have been some forums that I just mm. pulled away from because in the end, that's just all that was happening with them. And I, I just got bored with it. It wasn't yeah. interesting to me anymore. On Facebook, um, I've only unfriended two people because of their political spoutings um, ever since I've been on Facebook, because if it's being said, then I want to know about it, whether mm. I disagree about it with it or not. I mm. want to know. Mm. I want to know what's being said. I think one of the happiest things in this world of ours is to be able to live in a democracy. And if you live in a democracy, that involves talking to each other. Because when you talk to each other, you may start off at completely opposed extremes. But if you talk to each other and you listen as well as talk, then actually you end up working out a common path that you can work that works for everybody. You stop listening and it just becomes pure hatred. And what a waste of time and energy. Abs amazing world of ours. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... Why, why can't you have opposing viewpoints on a certain topic, but you can still be decent people? You can still get along, can't you? Absolutely. I think you're barking mad to have ridden the bike that you did around the world. <laughs> I think that I'm barking mad to have done what I did. Okay, that's fine. But we're still motorcyclists. We still enjoy each other's company. Yeah. Why are we going to let that one thing get in the way? And actually, I fully respect you and admire you for it. I still <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, right. That's enough politics. Let's get off politics. <laughs> right. Um, right. Nick Turnbull, there's a big paragraph here. Sorry, I'll just have a quick skim read of it, Sam. I should have I should have pre-read all this. Uh, You're both around the world travellers and have enjoyed reading and watching your journeys and many others in their own unique way. However, is there now a risk that with so many people dropping... Ev ah, I remember this one, Nick, yeah. With so many people dropping every dropping everything and doing their own adventure, the whole concept of round-the-world travel is becoming a bit passé. If not, why not? And if so, how can future travellers raise their game in a time of rising world tensions, climate change, and now pandemics? So world travel, is it just becoming, meh, it's a thing? Um, no, I don't think it is. When I was heading for Thailand, I met a chap who said, oh, do you know, it's really not worth your while going to Thailand now. If you'd gone 12 years ago, it would have been fantastic. You'd love it. Well, I got to Thailand and it was brand new to me. Mm. And I found all sorts of stuff that just amazed and enthralled me. Um, so I loved being in Thailand. And, oh, somebody's bringing you a cold beer. Thank you, Mrs. Teapot. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, dear, no worries. Thank you very much. One of, Sorry, no. One of those as well. That's all right. There's, there's two here for you, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, um, you were saying. Yeah, so um, I think that what's happening now is because we've got um, technology is that it looks as if there are an awful lot more people going around the world or riding lengths of continents and so on than there actually really are. Yeah. I have no idea how many people have actually ridden around the world Um Mark Holmes, the end of the author, Mark Holmes, mm -hmm. um, he's actually doing a survey at the moment to try and work out how many people really have ridden around the world. And I don't know what the current billion population is is of the world, but it's it's incredible. Yeah, but maybe a thousand people have ridden around the world. Is that all it is? No I idea. Saw... Oh. But you think about how many people you know with what you do. And yeah. how long you've been doing it yeah. that have actually ridden around the world. There are quite a lot of people that have ridden across Asia or have ridden the length of Africa or have wow, ridden the yeah. Americas. 
fantastic trips, absolutely amazing. But having ridden around the world, I don't know that there are actually that many. It'll be very interesting to see what Mark comes up with. Yeah, I saw his post. Mark's a Mark's a chap that he rode a Triumph Rocket. Um, was was it right down the length of Africa? He rode around the world. Was it around the world on the the rocket? Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating uh, story he does. He, he he gives presentations at like the Overland event and things like that, or NEC show, uh, the London Excel show, that sort of stuff. So it's well worth listening to him. And the, the and his book, um, which P for Brain here can't remember the title of at the moment. Um, it's it's exactly how a motorcycle travel book should be completely different to the last one yeah and yeah that it's um it's a fascinating book hunt it out if you can yeah it's, it's um it's a very touching story i think every, everyone has a story don't they that, that what what made them or um the impulse that, that that took them on their journey and, and marks is particularly emotional i think it's probably the best way to describe it. So it's it's well worth having a little dig there, folks. Have a look. Mark Holmes, Triumph Rocket Three, Round the World. Just Google it, and if you can, get your get your hands on the book. Nice one. Um, um, going back to Nick's question, mm. I think the advent of so much technology has affected things in a different way. In that, um, edgy stories as well as beautiful stories um, sell. So you hear an awful lot of edgy stories. Yeah. And, hey, we've been telling a few on this, haven't yeah, we, yeah, which yeah, people yeah. can see. But hopefully we've balanced that out with enough happy stories and, and put the scary stories that we've been telling in their reality box, uh, for want of a better way of putting it. So I think that people um, tend to become more afraid of doing it. But I think that also people are more afraid of making mistakes than they used to be and maybe that's something to do with the way that people are being brought up now mm. um, you know you see these jokey cartoons on social media where um mum's having to drag the kid who's got his um expanded muscle thumbs from playing on his his um xbox or whatever um versus the kid who's having been having to drag back in with grubby knees and tears and dirt on his on his shorts yeah um and I think that you know the the less people get out and and make mistakes as they're growing up, the the more fear there is. And I think that that does mean that there is one of the changes that's happening um, in the world. But I think that actually, it's not a case that there are more rising tensions in the world. I think that there is just an awful lot more soundbite reporting on it. And I'm not going to say any more because we've just been yeah. we've just been covering that in um, in depth. I think also um, one of the realities that anybody who goes traveling has to remember is be kind, mm. help somebody. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine um, stuck indoors um, during um, the, the COVID-19 and I'll, he sent me an email. We were having a bit of a discussion backwards and forwards and he sent me an email about how he copes with his day. And I'm just going to glance sideways because I pinned it up. It's a, It's such a good way of living in general and actually as a travel um, thing it's it's good so he said exercise every day so important when you're sitting yeah. on the back of a motorcycle for so much but get off your bike and walk around and when you have a, a backside rest every 50 miles or whatever you decide is best for you don't just stand by your bike 
Mm. Go walking for 10 minutes. Have a stride up and down the side of the, the street. It'll bring your body back to life again, and that means that you'll be focusing on what's happening and the possibilities and the risks that much better. So exercise. Do a kindness for oh. somebody every day. And most of us, I think we're all naturally kind, um, but make a point of doing something kind for somebody else. It's quite an interesting exercise to do is physically actually hunt out an opportunity to be kind to somebody. Mm. It's one of the things that changes your mindset when you're traveling that makes traveling so much more fun. Be grateful for one thing every day. And sometimes when the poos hit the fan and you're really battling with day after day after day, finding things to be grateful of each day suddenly help you keep things in, um, in perspective and in reality. So I, I like that one a lot achieve something every day this is a good one and that's real life but on the road every time that you achieve something you have a feel-good factor about it and that yeah. can make your day a happier place to be praise somebody what a nice thing to be doing when somebody you meet somebody or you see somebody doing something nice be it giving money to a beggar or picking somebody's bag up when they've dropped it or whatever it is take a moment out to just go and say that was really nice of you the, the feel good for yourself as well as for the person who's just been kind, it's, that's, that's great. It's, it's such Absolutely. a good yep. um, And fix something every day. Well, of course, when we're on the road, there's always going to be something that needs fixing. And if you do that every day, then the chances of your bike lasting your whole trip rather than breaking down frequently um, dramatically um, increased. So it's kind of a nice list, isn't it? And although it's working for him going through um, the COVID-19 situation, it's it's a great thing for being on the road too. It's just, a, it's a, I think that's just perfect to apply to everyday normal life, just life, whether you're on the road or at home. It, I love that. I love it. There's, there's not a single thing I'd argue with about in there. Perfect. I love Nick this, was It's awesome. Nick was asking something about, um, you know, whether the pandemic and, mm. and that sort of thing is going to change um, travel. Um, yeah, it, it has to. It, it has to. Um, until there's a vaccine, um, there are going to be all sorts of restrictions in place. And people who don't know that they're vulnerable will be vulnerable and they'll take the risk and they'll go out and travel and find, ah, Okay, this isn't good. Yeah. Or they'll be running the risk of carrying it and passing it on to somebody else who's just been amazingly kind to them or whatever yeah. else it is. Yeah. Mental attitude as a result of COVID-19 has to change. Pandemics have been around before and people have had to adapt. Human beings can adapt. I think this one seems to be particularly nasty and I think that until there's a vaccine around, then it is going to make um, travel very difficult. And... I think it'll go in the direction of when we are allowed um, to, to travel from one country to the next, each country is going to demand that we have a certificate, an absolutely current, just made certificate saying that we're not infected before we're allowed into a country. I think some countries will insist that we go into um, a quarantine station for two weeks before we're allowed loose in the country. and. So I think that those things are all very much likely on the cards. Am I worried about it? Well, no. It's just like another problem that the road is going to throw up that has to 
disillusioned to it. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. It's it's like getting a visa, isn't it? Some countries you have to get a visa before you go in, and some 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 of these visas are particularly bu- bureaucratic and time consuming to get. It's just it's just something you're going to have to deal with in order in order to make your plan happen. And I think the key thing for any overlander to remember is whatever you do, don't do something that could kill somebody else. Mm. How could you live with yourself if you yeah. did that? When yeah. you're out exploring and seeing the wonders of the world, yeah, no. The two things don't go together. Yeah, there's, there's something you said there about, you know, okay, you might be all right, but you might be carrying it. And someone that that shows you that amazing act of generosity by welcoming you into their home well they might not have whatever it is that you have that that protects you from it and then you then pass it on to them and you know the worst happens i yeah i totally get that i do totally and i think i've i have got i've not become blasé at all because i'm still i'm still stuck inside here and you know i'm still very aware of what's going on with with the virus and stuff but i've found myself over the last week or two again probably because of the media I found myself starting to think oh, it's not something I need to worry about. It's it's not as bad as they thought, you know, but okay. It's not been, it's not been bad for me and everyone I know that has, has got it has either brushed it off or been pretty bad for a week and then they've come back. But there are 37, 38,000 people in this country alone who didn't make it. And you that suddenly sits home, doesn't it? I was looking at the um, the statistics yesterday. I think we're the worst in the world for the death rate. Our our right. death rate ratio is the worst in the world. And you're like, my God, it's, I didn't I didn't comprehend that. It's um, it's yeah. I mean, we can get on political soapboxes yeah. again. Here. We're doing it again. <laughs> but one of the things that bothers me a lot about what's happening with this is that we're hearing very very little reporting um, on what happens to people after they have been hit by the virus. Yes, they've Mm. recovered, but what's happened to them after? Mm. And I have some personal experience with family and with some friends about this, and they were really badly knocked by it. It wasn't a case of, oh, I've got flu-like symptoms and I can't taste things quite so well and I'll go to bed for a week and I'm fine. These people have actually been hit. So seven Eight weeks later, they're coming out of it, um, but they're completely exhausted, mm-hmm. absolutely wiped out, and nobody knows how long that feeling is going to go on for. Yeah. And we hear very, very little about that. Mm. We're also hearing very little about how the virus is hitting other body functions um, and what long the long-term effect of that is. And I think that the lacking of reporting on those two things is one of the... Is, part of what's making people feel mm, okay it's months now and I'm bored and the weather's this nice let's go out mm. um, no 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 I get that no, no I get that Right. Oh dear, I'm being awful, aren't I? I'm no. just constantly thinking about things like that. Sorry. No, but Edit I mean, this, it out. this is the I, I think this is the beauty of this this type of medium, you know, of of long form content like this. People invest in it. You're in this for the long game, whether it's an hour chat or a three, four hour chat. And and this is normal conversation. This is what two normal people chat about, especially when you're going through a pandemic 
the pandemic's going to come up, isn't it? So, um, yeah, I mean, don't don't apologise about that. No, not at all. But we will do our best to steer clear of the C-word, politics and religion from now on. <laughs> Can't promise it, but we'll do our best. Uh, right, Andy Horton, question for us both. Have you ever travelled somewhere that you... Uh, that you looked forward to visiting and then arrived and thought, what a shithole, let's get out of here. Mm. Oh, you can answer that one first, Bruce. Wow. Uh, somewhere that I got to and I thought, hmm. Um, th- there's, there's a place, I mean, Mauritania, yes, but, but that was just for a whole multitude of different reasons. It was... It was my first taste of being well outside the developed world. You know, I was well outside my comfort zone. Um, it was incredibly hot. I was in a leather suit. I didn't drink enough. I nearly died of of um, of a sunstroke in the desert. You know, I, I snapped the frame of the bike. Uh, I got chased at gunpoint numerous times. So all those factors sort of taint my viewpoint of that country but then Seth Steph Jevon Steph Jevons she went through I think a week or two weeks after me she was literally no more than two weeks after I went through she went through and she had no problem at all so you just don't know do you it's just one of those things um a place I didn't I didn't particularly enjoy was uh, Java you know, the North Island on Indonesia? No, Sudan. No, not Sudan. Sumatra. I'll get the right place. Sumatra, the Northern Island. Oh, you've you've gone there, Sam. I can't hear your audio. Yep. Oh, that? All right, got you now. Sorry. Um, apologies. Yes, yeah, uh, Sumatra, the Northern Island of Indonesia, was just... It was incredibly hot. It was one long traffic jam. And I had practically no interaction with the people and that's that's my fault i didn't i didn't give myself time to meet people i just put my head down arse up and and rode to get through it so i was in traffic i was in heat it was humid as hell and i just didn't enjoy it so i would like to go back there and spend more time and meet people yeah what about yourself yeah i mean Indonesia for me was a funny place to be because um, the day before I was supposed to fly out from Australia to um, and then connect with my bike um, in um, in Indonesia, um, the day before all this was supposed to happen, I was supposed to be down the docks and getting the, the bike final paperwork sorted out and then flying out. Um, so the bike was going to head up into um, Indonesia and um, I was going to fly to Birgit, uh, to Germany to link up with Birgit. We'd met in New Zealand. Um, she was riding a bicycle there and um, I, we just clicked and I wasn't looking for a girlfriend and she certainly wasn't looking for a boyfriend like me, but you know how it is. Yep, that's when and it happens. By the, yeah, exactly. And fantastic. We, I got to um, the top of um, Australia and we'd been writing to each other and just amazing letters. And uh, I just thought, hang on a minute. Now, you've got to find out whether there really is something um, going on. So um, I bought this um, ticket to, to fly to Germany 
um, so that we could see and so that I could see her in her home environment rather mm -hmm. than on the road environment and we could spend some proper time together, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, well, not romantic at all because I slipped a disc. And, um, the doctor told me I'd never ride a motorcycle again, et cetera, et cetera. It was um, um, a long, painful experience, but hey, that's life. But um, I ended up backpacking through Indonesia instead of riding my motorcycle, and I was gutted that that had happened. But it did mean that I was walking around and in shorts and a T-shirt, and it did mean that I was carrying a rucksack and I didn't have the responsibility of a motorcycle and I was using local transport and all of those sorts of things. So the complete opposite to what you ended up having to deal with. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was hot and it was humid and riding in bike gear in that traffic can't have been um, a very comfortable experience without taking good long breathers where you go and lie on a white sand beach for three days and just mentally chill out and that must have been really harsh i, I remember like it is sumatra isn't it the north one the north island with medan that's sumatra i just remember that being in, an endurance just in i had to endure that to get through mm. and then crossing into java the next one and i had to go to um oh what's the capital in java Indonesia, Jakarta. Yeah, yeah. I had to meet some people in Jakarta. Oh my God, the traffic there! I've never ridden in India, but I've been told the traffic in, in Jakarta is as close as you'll get to like India. It was, I mean, it's an entire city of traffic jam. That's all it is. It's just there's no room left on the road, so all the the mopeds are on the pavement, and it's just. It's just a free for all, just a total free for all in in like a hundred percent humidity and a hundred and twenty five degree heat. <laughs> so that was an experience. But then once I got through Java, I got to Bali, and then from Bali down, it's just paradise, just absolute paradise. And then doing the ferry hopping, hopping from all the islands. Oh man, good for Oh, it's just it's like. It's like a storybook country. It's, it's just beautiful. Again, it's like somewhere someone's painted. It's just amazing. Stop it, please. You're making me want to go and get on a plane. <laughs> I'll tell you a little story about the um, story time. A little story about uh, Indonesian ferries. I'm on the 24-hour ferry that takes you, uh, I think, is it from Florin? Is it Flor Florin? To West Timor. It's a 24-hour ferry. And I'm... They're lying on my little mattress in amongst everybody else. And I'm watching people just throw their rubbish over the side into the sea. And that really, in Africa, that hacked me off the way people just dump their rubbish. And, you know, I understand. I understood in Africa, there weren't bins. There's not bin men there. But they're just trashing this beautiful place. But then in Indonesia, on these, these boats, there's bins. And I'm like, why aren't you using the bloody bin? So I was making a point of getting up and putting my stuff into the bins thinking I'm on my moral high ground here. I will lead the way, heal the world. Well, we get to the port and the ferry is docking and all the staff come out and they start tidying everywhere up and they get all the black bin bags out the bins, walk to the side of the boat and throw them all in the sea. <laughs> I was just like, what? <laughs> Sums it up yeah. really, doesn't it? Yeah. I had a very similar experience of that on the train in India. Um, I was traveling with a, a German guy and um, he went to throw his stuff out of the window. No, no glass in the windows. 
and um, that's what the locals have been doing. And I said to him, mate, we know better than this. Yeah. Um, the locals were doing it because they had gone from the days of the cups that they were drinking their chai or their coffee out of having been made by the potter who sat at the end of the, the platform. And these things were just baked in the sun and they'd last long enough for you to drink your tea. Yeah. And then you had been out the windows biodegradable. The plates that you got your curry and rice served to you on were made out of leaves that had been stitched together and dried in a, a mould. Wow. So you had the bowl shape. When you finished, you just binned it out of the window. Yeah. Well, this is now the times of polystyrene and tin foil, and it's all going out of the window. And mm. the locals just hadn't grasped. So we collected all of our stuff in um, a carrier bag, and the, the the locals in our compartment were looking at us as if to say, "You're extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You are." You are <laughs> so, and uh, at the at the different railway stations. Small boys, most of them were orphans. Uh, they would come on with their brushes made out of um, palm leaves and they would scoot around and for a few rupees, they would clean around your feet. And so we thought, well, you know, these kids, um, there's paper in here, there's plastic in here, there's tinfoil in here. And we both knew that people made their livings um, with recycling in India, particularly people at the level of the boys. So we gave this lad the carrier bag full of everybody's waste. And he looked inside and looked up at me, looked up at my mate, went over to the window and emptied it out the window. No. <laughs> Almost oh. identical story. But um, that's just because people don't know. Mm. And we have to go and, I know, it sounds awfully pompous, but lead by example. The penny will drop sooner or later. At some point, yeah, at some point. Cool. Have you seen... Have you seen um... Oh God! What is the guy called? There's this young chap from oh, I can't remember which I can't can't remember what country it is Switzerland or somewhere like that. Is it Bo Boken? Boken? Basically, so this young guy's a like an engineering marvel, and he has created this mechanism. He's identified that most of the world's plastic pollution in the seas. It comes from five main rivers around the world. So what his plan is, and it appears to be working, is he's developed these floating sort of factories that sit on these rivers right near the estuary points, and they basically just allow that the current and the tidal action of the river washes plastic straight into these machines, and they automatically gather it all up, and it's, you know, once a skip is full, it's automatically taken away, and it goes into recycling. And it's already having... An effect on the plastic waste. He's he's been interviewed on Joe um, Joe Rogan a couple of times. And you think, wow! I mean, this this kid is like 22, 23 years of age. And he's he's been working on this exactly, for. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I mean about um, people will get it. Mm. We we spend too much time thinking that people in developing world countries are stupid. Well, they're far from it. Yeah. Um, they're just dealing with the conditions that they've got to deal with. Mm -hmm. And it only takes somebody to come up with a genius idea and then for them to get some encouragement, some recognition and some funding, and then bang, yeah. off they're going. Yeah. It's yeah, fantastic to see, isn't it? Yeah. And my goodness, we certainly aren't perfect in the UK for what we yeah. do with our rubbish. Certainly not. seen some photos over the last few days about beauty spots that have been completely trashed. It's yeah. sad really gets my goat that people there's no excuse in this country to drop your litter there's just no excuse for it yeah. anyway right um last two questions here on i've just seen the time we've been at this for 
two hours, 15 minutes. So are you all right for time at the moment? Yeah, absolutely fine. Keep, keep, let's keep rolling. Awesome. Am I, am I still recording? Yeah, I think I am. Um, right. Eddie Goldspink. Um, he said he's also had the pleasure of meeting you and what a top man. A couple of questions for both of us. How do you deal with any frustrations with bureaucracy and the various personalities you encounter at borders? Do you see any different behaviours in yourself, positive or negative, when travelling compared to when you were back home? Hmm. Borders. Answering that question um, last bit first, no. Because the things that I've learnt on the road have affected how I deal with everyday life at home yep. in, in the same way. Um the roads taught me an awful lot of things. So the first thing is, um, when you've got a border crossing coming up, if you go into it and you're properly prepared, as in you found out, and we can do that now, um, what sort of paperwork they're going to require at that border crossing, and we've got it ready and it's properly filled in, um, and we've got the right number of photocopies, and we can do all of that now, then that is the first step. It's preparation. Um, let your common sense sing because it's such an underestimated um, sense. Um, just go into every border crossing with your common sense working on full bore because you will see things, you will analyse what you're seeing if you're using common sense and they will stop being frustrations, they will just become the way it is. Mm -hmm. Treat everything and everybody with respect until they prove that they don't deserve it because you never know who you're actually going to be dealing with. Mm -hmm. There was one border crossing in Africa. Um, there was a beggar by the side of the street where I'd parked my motorcycle. And I was going to border crossings with a bag of boiled sweets or a bag of biscuits. It used to be a carton of cigarettes, and I'd hand out the cigarettes. Well, I'd share them, you know? Not a carton, but a packet. Mm -hmm. um, then I got onto biscuits and boiled sweets. Well, this guy looked hungry, so I, I gave him a, a handful of, of biscuits. And he looked up at me, and he said... This is the first kind thing somebody has done to me for weeks. Wow. And I was amazed that this guy spoke English as well as he did. So anyway, we stood and we had this conversation. I really wasn't in a hurry. And we, sat, we stood and we chatted for about 15 minutes. Anyway, then I said, well, look, you know, I'd better go and get on with this. And when I got into the, um, the customs office, an officer came out to me and um, he said to me, I see you've been talking to my brother-in-law. He's, um, he's not all there, you know, but thank you wow. for showing him you come with me we'll deal with your paperwork just because i had treated a stranger with respect and you never know what the knock-on effect is going to be so treat everybody with respect until they prove they don't deserve it border crossings you can help yourself an awful lot by arriving as soon as they open in the morning so if that means stay at a town nearby um, the night before then do so mm -hmm. If you get to a border first thing in the morning, there are so many things that are going for you. If they want to play silly buggers with you, um, well, then they can all day and you can let them. If you turn up at a border crossing at the end of the day, then they know the clock is ticking on you. And that means that you've put yourself under pressure and you've made yourself vulnerable. So get there first thing in the morning. And the other reason that that's a good thing is because these guys, the officials, they haven't been hassled by numpties all day with silly questions and not having the right paperwork and all of the rest of it. <laughs> so the chance of you going through in a much more chilled, relaxed atmosphere, leaps and bounds first thing in the morning. Um, the next thing is shake hands. Um, shake hands with everybody. It doesn't matter who they are. Shake hands with kids, shake hands with officials, shake hands with the person standing in the queue next door to us, whatever it is. It's a great feeling. And you, there's just this buzz about you as a person when you're dealing with all of these things that make people think, oh, 
can't help them mm-hmm. uh, because you've just treated them all with respect and with warmth and friendliness. It doesn't matter whether you know nothing in, in common language with wise, um, but that handshake pays you dividends all over the place. Be calm and friendly. Don't let anything get up your nose. Um, somebody might be behaving like a complete ass. Well, let them. It's interesting to watch what's happening and to see what's going to happen next by you not retaliating in like. Spitting a hissy fit and all of the rest of it <laughs> doesn't work. Nope. Um, I've done that. <laughs> it just doesn't work. You dig yourself a bigger hole. Mm-hmm. It's, it's much better to be gently firm. Yeah. Um, sometimes being the ignorant tourist and I really don't understand what the hell you're talking about, mate. Um, that pays off too. That's not mm. how we do it in my country. Oh, really? <laughs> no. Yeah, good luck with that. Border Some... crossings are interesting, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. I I hated them initially when I didn't know what I was doing and I, and I couldn't understand the in my eyes, the illogical way it was, I couldn't, I didn't get it. It's like, what, like, you know, when you, you have to pay a little tax to um, get in this queue rather than that queue. And oh, I need to pay that person a dollar to, to photocopy it when I can photocopy it perfectly well, but it's all the system. You just, it's a thriving industry, isn't it? And a lot of these borders, that's how people make their living. It is. And it's working out who's the merchant who wants to take advantage yeah. of you because you're, the one who's looking vulnerable mm-hmm. um, and the one who's just doing the job. Absolutely. Earning a and yeah. you might be the only person that day um, who needs 10 photocopies of whatever else documented it is. Everybody else may need one. Mm-hmm. So that dollar that you're giving, that may be the, the main earner for them and their family from that day. Absolutely. Yeah, another another big thing, I, I mentioned this right at the start, was I didn't realise how badly affected i was by being dehydrated in particularly dehydration's a biggie with me i lose all patience and reasoning and logic so what i found myself doing if i knew a border was coming up was making sure i got plenty of water on board and had water with me so that i could keep drinking because sometimes you are there for a couple of hours and you know if you can't get out the sun and you're sat there for a couple of hours frustrated, then you need to keep that water going in you. Because otherwise, like me, I would just get narky. I'm not a nice place to be, not a nice person when I'm... I mean, that's that's absolutely right. And one of the things that I do is I carry what I call my walkaway bag. Mm. And that tends to be my tank bag, um, which is either a shoulder bag made out of heavy-duty canvas with wire through the shoulder straps so nobody can come up behind me and snip it and that mm. sort of stuff. But Or it's my tank bag. What I've got in that is um, a couple of bottles of water, yep. um, a paperback, uh, my carne, uh, my photocopies, um, something to eat, those biscuits or boiled sweets that I was talking about earlier on, um, those sorts of things. And then I can walk away from the bike and I've got everything that I need just to keep me ticking along and to help keep me calm. And the time that you start celebrating with something like one of these uh, is, of course, when you make it through the other side and you made it to your hotel that night. And you know, try the most food this Terrible, disgusting things, but you never know until you've tried them. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic, Slange. Um, right, last question on Instagram. Uh, not Instagram, on Patreon. Mike on a bike. When taking on an epic journey, has there ever been a time when you felt overwhelmed and almost giving up on it? 
Well, me, yes, and I did, but thankfully got back to it. Um, we've already covered that. What about you, Sam? Hello, Mike. Um, no, not really. Um, things don't tend to phase me that much and I'm kind of a laid-back lazy sort of guy when I'm dealing with things and I slow down and um, I'm a firm believer that there is always a solution to a situation when something is difficult um, and I'm kind of curious to see what that solution is most of the time and I'm not too afraid to walk away from something and think right okay there's got to be an alternative plan and that's what Bruce did um, and I like that. There's nothing wrong with turning away, but no, I, not really. Um, maybe it's just um, a strong streak of stupidity. No, it's 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 a character it's a character trait you have, Sam. That just everybody loves you for it. Really, it's just you are that type of bloke that you roll with whatever comes your way, and you just deal with it. From what I've seen of you. Life is just really interesting. Uh, yeah. There's always interesting stuff going on and there's always good stuff going on. Even in the worst situations, there are things that are happening that are interesting. And yeah, okay, something may be completely pear-shaped and nasty at that particular moment. But hey, think about this. You make it through that situation and you've got a great story to tell. Absolutely. So there's the problem. Right, just to remember when you're in the middle of the shit. <laughs> oh, Man, that is such a fantastic mentality to have towards everything i love that i absolutely love it um my well, god spends the time completely knackered because because <laughs> you're just well, hey let's just go with it <laughs> um mate that's nearly two and a half hours and we've just finished the patron questions there's still a load of questions to go on instagram facebook and twitter but for me i am running out of time because um the, the wife has plans this evening. Um, right. Could we do a part two, maybe? I'll get you back on and we can do some more. If, if you're prepared to risk it, then, yeah, why not? Let's go for it. So be fun. I, I've really enjoyed fantastic questions. These have been really good. So thank you very much to everybody who's been sending those in. Some of you guys I know, but a lot of you guys I don't. So, yeah, it's good to link up with you. Cheers. It's been awesome, hasn't it? Because we've we've sort of known each other for quite a few years. But when you're at these these um, like the hub and the Overland event and the shows and stuff, you don't get time to talk to each other. You're always talking with other people, and you know you, you sit in on like I'll sit in on listen to some of your presentations and stuff. But you never you never get that chance to chat because you're always chatting with other people, don't you? So thank you very it's much. No, I really do appreciate you coming on and, and it's been great to have a good chat with you this time. Well, thank you for the invitation. Cheers. Ah, nice no one. problem at all. Um, mate, please feel free, do some plug-in for your books and whatever else you need to do for the for, for just now. Over to you. All right, thank you. Um, well, I have four books out. I didn't intend to write anything when I was on the Round the World trip. But I did write um, a journal every day, and this is one of my top tips to anybody that's traveling. Write a journal. Um, make yourself do it. Um, you're on intake overload when you're traveling, and that means it's, it's almost like having a huge funnel strapped to the front of your head with the pointy bit, the one that's going into your brain. And it's so easy to forget 
um, stuff from one week to the next. So write a journal. And some days, um, write lots, whatever your instinct is. And other days, you've just been too darn busy. Write down 20 key words. Those will be enough to spark off um, what um, has happened that day, the memories of. Without those journals, I would never have been able to write the books. Um, the books came about because I wrote a few magazine articles. And when I got back at the end of the trip, the editor of the magazine, it was Motorcycle Sport and Leisure in the UK, um, said, Sam, we're getting loads of letters and emails from people saying they like your, book, your articles. When's your book coming out? Well, my first thought was, well, what book? I didn't even want to write articles until I had a go. So I thought, well, let's have a go and see what happens. Into Africa came out, some people liked it, so um, and we're asking what happens next. And um, so I sat down to write Under Asian Skies. And in the end, um, Distant Suns was book three, and um, Tortillas to Totems was book four. And the four books take you through the different continents of uh, what made up the um, eight-year journey around the world. Um, the books are out now as paperbacks, and you can either get them direct from me, um, signed copies, um, or you can link up with me at a show when they ever start happening again, or they're available from Amazon and uh, the book depository. The books are also available in Kindle format, so those again from Amazon, but they're also, as Bruce kindly mentioned earlier on, they're out in audiobook format, and those are downloadable from Audibles and from iTunes, or if um, you're a little bit old school like me and you fancy something physical, then I still have copies of Into Africa, Under Asian Skies and Distant Suns in CD format, which you can get um, direct from me. So, yeah, thank you very much. I, I hope you'll have a go. If you haven't read any of the books, then may I suggest you start with Into Africa. You've already heard some of the stories, and that's where I turn in to from somebody who's a complete motorcycling numpty into somebody who's addicted to this amazing way of travel. Uh, I can only I can only vouch for, for what Sam's saying. I'm listening to the audible version of Into Africa at the moment and it's it's awesome. Check it out. There'll be links down below in the description, so make sure you check them out. Sam, thank you so much, mate. I can't wait till we see each other in person again. Looking forward to that and um all the best to, to you and Burgett. I hope everything is is going well and I wish you the very best. Thank you very much indeed, and likewise, and um, same to all the listeners. Cheers. Awesome, dude. Look after yourself. Right, folks, I hope you've enjoyed that chat. There's so much more which we could cover, but um, there will be a part two. So look after yourselves, folks. Remember what we always say. Look after those that you love, but get on out there and live your life. Ooh-ha!